0: I gotta talk to you about something.
1: I gotta talk to you about something. I can't do this alone. I need you in command with me.
0: Look, this droid, thank you. I appreciate that. General. General.
1: I still have a bad feeling about this. This is the 11th day of Star Wars. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by spending two weeks at Christmas lovingly analyzing all the highs and lows of our favorite franchises. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co host, Tessa. And joining us today to talk about the last film in the Skywalker saga is our producer and the manager of our complaint department, Ryan. Hello. (laughs) Happy to be back. I think. How's the holiday season uh shaping up for you Ryan? How's it been going since we talked last? It's been
2: busy. The outside of our house has lights on it, which are on right now and they look pretty fine. The inside of our house is undecorated and the Christmas decorations are still in the attic where they may or may not remain and I'm not going to feel bad about it because there's just been a lot going on. You know, we had uh my dad's family is Jewish so we had that Hanukkah celebration on Sunday, Saturday, I had uh, my the Philadelphia Film Critics Circle awards voting celebration. Work is busy. Things are going on. So it's just been like finding the like that combination of time and holiday energy has been just not working out.
0: I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I'm going to turn the camera and show you our Christmas tree, which has nothing on it so Uh, that's right
1: it has lights on. it has
0: lights on it but they came with the tree so i don't know if we get credit but it (laughs) is
2: assembled and plugged in which is more than i can say for my tree which is above me through the ceiling
1: (laughs) (laughs) the uh the other thing is if you can see grogu back there
0: since the pandemic we've been putting grogu on top of the christmas tree
1: so i i actually have a related
2: star wars holiday special story where There was a year where my wife and I were like, we're going to get a new Christmas tree topper. And we both don't like that most of them are just covered in glitter because that glitter just ends up all over the house and not on the tree topper. And so I was like, you know what? We're walking over the toy aisle. We grabbed one of those like very basic, you know, 10 inch Darth Vader's. We have a hair tie around his legs. He gets wrapped to the top of the tree. And that is our tree (laughs) topper.
0: I'm telling you, Star Wars and Holidays, they really go together. I, I don't even completely you know, understand why, but they do. You know the
1: one place they don't go together? The Star Wars Holiday <laughs> Special. That's
0: true. The one time they actually tried to put them together, it did not work.
2: I do support Disney's Disney's effort to uh, make Life Day merchandise a thing. And there is a there's a Legends and Fables Life Day treasury that we have, but I have not read yet.
1: Oh, Disney.
2: I mean, they're trying to make Life Day happen, but they are still ignoring the, all of the live action parts of the holiday special, which I think is a <laughs> wise <Right>. choice.
1: <laughs> let's, let's rip the bandage off. Let's do it. I want to preface our discussion of The Rise of Skywalker today with a couple of things. And the first thing is to say how, I think, how good these conversations have been with everybody who's been on board with us uh, in the last several days. I think that, well, I know that the Star Wars franchise is not a very healthy place in terms of fandom. And it's, I just think we've we put together some pretty good episodes. I think everybody's come and had some really great things to say. And I definitely understand things about this franchise that I didn't before. But the second thing is, Ryan, Prior to your viewing of Rise of Skywalker for this episode when was the last time you had seen this movie?
2: It was actually earlier this year believe it or not. Really? Yes because uh, we went to Star Wars Celebration in May so on May 23rd we watched Rise of Skywalker because I think we were like getting excited for our trip and just Okay. Running through the series. This was my, uh, at least according to Letterboxd, this was my eighth watch of The Rise of Skywalker to prep for this. I saw it four times in theaters. It might have been five because there's one in January 2020 that may have been a a theater watch.
1: So I assume you watched it on opening night.
2: I saw it on opening night and before opening night because I right. saw it at a, a press screening a few days prior. And we had already had tickets for two days later to see right. it opening public
1: night. So so what date was that opening night again? December 19th of
2: 2019.
1: And that is the last time we had seen The Rise of Skywalker prior to today. (laughs) Here at Monkey Off My Backlog, we nominally check things off of our media to-do lists that we've never encountered before, or in some cases want to re-encounter for specific reasons. So we are fulfilling that mission today with The Rise of Skywalker. I have not been able to bear the thought of going back to this movie, and we did it this morning. The
2: other thing I want to preface is that I volunteered for this episode.
1: (laughs) You did. We weren't going to have anybody on, and Ryan's like, I would like to nominate myself.
0: Ryan was the brave person who... We also... The other thing, too, is that I think we really trusted you to have a conversation about this film as a film and not a rant, which I feel like a lot of people when they talk about this movie have. So thank you for coming on.
1: Ryan, as you mentioned just a minute ago, and as a lot of people probably already know, you are a, I don't know, do you have a card? Are you a card-carrying
2: film critic? I mean, do, does anybody carry cards anymore? I don't I don't know. If I felt the need to carry a card, I could print one up that said I was a film critic gotcha. and it would be legitimate.
1: Okay. <laughs> so activating that professional side of yourself, what what can you tell us about The Rise of Skywalker or the Skywalker saga in general before we do our monkey business.
2: Yeah, it's I mean, for any, any movie that I'm coming into with a emotional connection to before the movie starts, and that that could be for a number of reasons, it could be I'm seeing Glass Onion, and I really like Ryan Johnson. And so like, I'm, I have a relationship with that movie that predates me actually watching that particular movie. And, you know, obviously, as I've talked about before with you guys, Star Wars is something I have a very, very deep emotional connection to. And so it's hard because, you know, one of the things that we try to do at Movie John, and I think, you know, a lot of other critics try to do this as well, is like, I don't want to come at it, I don't want to write my review from a total like fan perspective. Like, I don't want to recap of like, you know, here's all these Easter eggs that it referenced and here's this this Legends character that got name dropped in this movie. Like, none of that stuff. Should matter because I'm trying to write my review for a general audience. So, like, I kind of assume that the person who's reading it, like, you know, has seen The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi at least once. And so they have a working knowledge of, like, who these characters are, what the universe is like. And then I'm sort of evaluating how did it make me feel? And then what parts of it made me feel that way and why? And so, in a weird way, I think this was a rare case where. With the Rise of Skywalker specifically, where I was a lot easier on it th- in my original review than I probably should have been, because I was trying to—I I was really just trying to process it. Because you know, it was—it's a, a tight turnaround. Like it's always not great when you have less than forty-eight hours between, like you know, ideally I want to always publish our reviews of big movies on like the Friday morning of their release day. And I had seen it on like Wednesday, it might have been Tuesday at the earliest. That's a quick turnaround time for a movie that one has a lot going on in it, two I have an emotional connection with, and three is a is kind of a big hot mess. No matter how you, where you stand on on your feelings about the movie, I think objectively it's a it's messy. So you know, Star Wars is probably the the biggest mountain to triumph, you know. But similarly with the Fablemans, like I have a deep connection to Spielberg's work, and so you know, writing that review, like, I always want to come with a place of honesty. And I always want to say, give my, like, not bona fides, but almost like qualifiers to be like, look, I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who is predisposed to like this thing. I usually don't review stuff that I'm predisposed to dislike, because we now have enough people where like, I don't know that that really, you know, is really what we're looking to do. Not that we try to do, like, be positive all the time, like, but... You know, I think there's a different way to evaluate some stuff. So this one was really tough because on some level, I was like, this is kind of a fun adventure movie on some level. And if I wasn't so deeply invested in Star Wars, I probably would have had a good time watching it. At the same time, there are parts of this movie that I think are excellent, or at least moments in this movie, I think are are excellent. And when you're really excited about a new thing, it can take a while for that stuff to sort of even and balance out. You know, and I think my my 2022 watches of Rise of Skywalker, I feel like I've actually settled on what my true feelings are. You know, I ran into it in the South Passage, and you know, it 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 gave you my true feelings for the movie. <laughs> you know, but it's it's really it's really been an interesting ride. And then again, with this being a trilogy capper, it's like thinking trying to evaluate the sequel trilogy as a as a project, as a project, you know, and this is coming off Rogue One and Solo kind of sandwiched in the middle of the sequels and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, there's no straightforward answer for this other than to say, like, it's hard, but you know, I don't think of film critic Ryan as being super different from normal movie watching on the couch, Ryan, it's, you know, but there is the Star Wars diehard part that is hard to factor in.
1: If you carried a card, what would it say?
0: Professional Muppet Wrangler? No, like Real a serious answer? Only. Okay. It's hard because I've been defining myself by grad school for so long that it's hard to find like a a way of putting that. I guess I am a teacher, but I'm also a scholar in medical humanities, disability studies, and science fiction.
1: You say that like you're unsure of it.
0: I mean, the problem is, is that a lot of people don't know what I mean when I say "hum." Like, the problem is... <laughs> is that in certain circles, what I just said would be incredibly like straightforward. In other circles, it would not be. So it's hard to... I need multiple cards depending on if I'm right. talking to someone who's in the field versus someone who's not in the field.
1: Well, I mean, so I guess there's a part A and a part B question here. The part A is, huh? What do you mean by that? Why is it hard to to explain this in different communities? And B, what of that do you bring to... I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's a bigger question. We're talking about Star Wars right now, but it's not as integral to your life as it is. It is, but not as integral, it sounds like, as either Ryan or myself. Oh, no. Well, right. So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is before we talk about this movie, how do you come to it in a way that, you know, juxtaposes with Ryan as a film critic and whatever I'm going to say about myself, which to be fair, I haven't decided either. So,
0: well, so. I think that is an interesting question because I was raised on Star Wars, but my relationship with it is I think very different than Ryan and your relationship with it because like my memories of Star Wars are just like my dad loved the movies and so we like watched them all the time, but my dad also loved Star Trek and so we watched Star Trek all the time and you know any any kind of like science fiction we watched willow all the time like any kind of science fiction or fantasy is like something that's from my childhood which is why my advisor was like no wonder you became a science fiction professor like you just had to like monetize it or science fiction scholar you just had to like monetize it which i still don't know if that's what i've actually done but the idea i guess is that i hadn't i hadn't watched any of the ancillary material i didn't read any of the star wars books prior to Really the last 10 years, and even then I haven't really read that many Star Wars books. It's mainly just been like the Clone Wars and Rebels and the television shows. And even then, you'll remember, I mentioned this during the solo episode, I had to be convinced to watch those things. But I always liked the films. Like, I, I was always like a fan of them. I, you know, I've I've probably watched the original trilogy dozens of times, you know, and they're some of my, my biggest memories of my childhood besides uh, the next generation, actually. So I do have come to them with a great love of them and great fandom of them, but I'm not as immersed in fan language, I guess, or like the fan discourse community in that way, mainly because I also resist being in a lot of fan discourse communities for some very misogynistic reasons, I should say. But switching over to the scholar side, though, is I did study science fiction. And you know whether we want to argue about whether Star Wars is a space opera or uh, science fiction, or or whatever. I do have, you know, a several degrees in speculative fiction, the fantastic, um, talking especially American fantastic traditions, and so I am able to approach all of these films with my knowledge of how to talk about them, and I try really hard not to bring a lot of like scholarly scholarly jargon when I talk on this podcast or when I write for movie John or, you know, something like that, because I know that that puts a lot of people off and it's not the right community for it. Um, And so like, that's, you know, fine for me, but I am bringing a lot of that knowledge into what I say about this, these films and, and how I look at them. And I am not probably as well-versed in film as Ryan is because I do come from a different tradition, but I did take a lot of film classes. And I did write about films in my, in my dissertation, um, specifically um, Blade Runner and Ex Machina. And so, you know, I do have some working knowledge of it, even if I haven't, even if my, if my knowledge kind of comes from a slightly different place. So that's kind of what I guess I'm bringing mostly to my film analysis, especially of Star Wars is like casual fandom and, <laughs> and, and the ability to analyze things.
2: Yeah, and, and I will say, just just for the record, and because I, I do think it's kind of, it might be interesting to people, you have t- definitely taken more film classes than I have, Tessa. I took exactly <laughs> uh, a week and a half of a film class, uh, and then dropped it because we spent an entire class analyzing camera placement in that 70s show. And I was like, this is not what I signed up for.
0: <laughs> well, what's interesting about what you just said, though, and I, I was thinking about this specifically in terms of Star Wars. Because my, I taught a class on graphic novels and comic books and visual rhetoric. That's what the name of the class was that I taught. I got to propose the class, I got to design it. Um, it was great. I've never been able to do that since, but it was really, really cool teaching all of these people this because I wrote my master's thesis on um, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. And it was really interesting teaching all of these uh, all of these students about graphic novels and about visual rhetoric and you know all of that stuff on on comic books and it was really funny because that was when i want to say it was when it wasn't the force awakens there was something Star Wars related, and I remember one of my students, and several of them said this, but I remember my students specifically saying it about this is that she was watching it. And she was like, you've ruined just casually watching movies, because now I watch them. And I'm like, what is what does this color mean? What does this framing mean? Like, what is this? You know, like, how are how are the images telling a story? And like, that I feel like that's really what you need to be able to write about film. And and to write about stuff. I mean, like it's really nice to know more about the craft, and I'm constantly learning more about the craft as I go. But really, it's a a willingness to analyze and a willingness to really see, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I think a lot of people at Movie John have that. I mean, I, that's what I've been seeing from all the articles that I've written and read so far. Sam, what would be on your card? You have to answer <laughs> this question now. Oh man.
1: Jack of all trades, master of none.
0: Well, you just said it has to be a serious answer. That
1: is a serious answer. (laughs) I will explain. But first, I I just really quickly, I posted a picture of this on uh, our Discord server the other day, but because podcasting is a visual medium, I'm going to bring it back. I am so proud of myself that I found this. I thought it was gone. Still have the letter, but I thought the bookmark that came from Lucasfilm was gone was sent to me from Lucasfilm.
0: You're very proud, of, very it. Cool. Very yeah. proud of it.
1: I am very proud of it. You should be. Uh, I can actually date this now that I have it in my hand. I was 12 years old when I wrote to George Lucas and asked him about episodes one through three and seven through nine, having just found out they existed and thought, "Well, I'm going to go to the source on this one." So it did, and uh, you know, I got the company line that he he knew it. He knew what they were all along. Which is obviously not true, but that's okay. When you, what, when the, what is it? When the myth is better than the facts? Yeah. Report the myth. Yeah. I did <laughs> it, it, not correctly yeah. quote Liberty Valance just then, but I came close. <laughs> I asked this question because I, we had so much fun with Fast and Furious. We did. We talked about X-Men the following year. We ta- yeah, we did I had that.
0: fun with X-Men. I got I a lot of new friends no, we, out of it. We
1: did. We did have fun. And, and this has been rewarding is probably the best way to describe it. But another way you could, could describe it is exhausting. Yes. And I mean, it's so hard to talk about Star Wars. And I mean, that's kind of the curse of the prequels and the sequels. When it was just those three movies. And then what we now know is the Legends books. Or even before then, it was a much different conversation. But I know I would not be sitting anywhere close to where I am right now if Star Wars didn't exist. I know that. I know that, you know, I I loved reading and, you know, I obviously like other movies. I was very much into popular culture from like the beginning, the very beginning. But I, I go back to, and we talked about some of this during the original trilogy episodes, but... I, you know, I learned, I don't need to read Joseph Campbell. I don't. I learned it all from Star Wars. Right. Right. You think about how much of an education Star Wars can be for kids who grew up and watched it over and over again. And each time you saw something different, each time you saw something you already knew, but in that defamiliarized way. I thought I was going to go into medicine when I started at college. And that did not last very long for reasons that I'm not going to go into. So, the path of least resistance at that point seemed to be English because it just it just was the thing that drew on my skill set. And however many years later, here I am as a assistant professor of English. But it's interesting when you get to this point, uh, and the reason I said Jack of all trades is that when you when you become a professor of English, you have to you have to silo you know, Tessa nominally fits on the literature side, but then has, you know, you've siloed yourself even further. Although I know you don't silo. I do understand that. And, and you know, the true tragedy of our profession is you have to do that. And then it becomes extremely hard to be able to do the thing that you're so specially trained for. Because if you know me, you know, I don't ever do things the way I'm supposed to. I refuse to silo. I am a, a PhD in English with specializations in literature. Rhetoric and composition and English education. I can say that. I proved it. And if you'll recall, our director of graduate studies and your dissertation director said, you better be ready to defend yourself because nobody will believe you. And it's true. It's true. It's very true. I told you a couple of days ago after watching one of the Star Wars documentaries that if I could ever, if I could go back in time and go to any school and study anything, I would have told you back when I was 12 and wrote that letter to George Lucas USC film school because of Star Wars. You can't just talk about Star Wars, can you?
0: No. I mean, it's such a huge thing, I think, to so many people. And even though, like, I have mentioned before, like, I don't know if that's true of people who are children now as much as it is for us um, because we tend to think of star wars as just this massive thing that everybody knows about but you would not believe how many of my students have never seen star wars and don't understand what it's about that's just i mean but that's pop culture that's just the way it is is that something that you think is so hugely encompassing isn't it's ephemeral it's never gonna be the same forever and
1: and i guess my point to all of that is i realized maybe i didn't say what the point was uh the the point is in my world Tessa's siloed world is different specifically because of your science fiction focus. It is very different because, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, film criticism may be about a lot of things, but I got to say it's primarily about films, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yes. Yeah. The, The best film critics certainly have knowledge beyond that, that they bring to inform their thoughts just like anybody should, but it's mostly about movies. Yeah.
1: It's So, you know, it's, it's coming from a, a thing that I aspired to do, have succeeded at, have been doing for a long time. It's a place that I participate in that thinks popular culture is less than, that is very slow to change, that will still refer to themselves as humanists, which is like we're in the dust on that, man.
0: Yeah, when I tell people that, they're always like, "Are you anti-human?" I'm like, "No, that's not a thing anymore. We're post-human now, baby." <laughs> yeah, I,
1: and, but the, but there's a lot to that, and and I don't think we have time to really unpack yeah. that today. But yeah, that might be something. The point is, it's funny, I think, and it really occurred to me when you when you volunteered to do this episode, Ryan. <laughs> it's it's just interesting coming at this as as two people with a third person who's who's history is so different in many ways, but is ultimately qualifiable. I don't know. I'm no, trying to say
0: great. You're qualified. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's, it's,
1: it's like who, who better to talk about this, right? Even though it's such a different experience, right? Mm-hmm. And but, you know, Ryan coming from a place where the film is the thing. And now I'm paraphrasing Shakespeare. But for me, the film is not the thing. Even though it's probably the most formative thing in my life, I'm told it doesn't matter as much as all the things I should be spending my time on.
2: Right. All the things that have moved from pop culture to culture. Right. Because, you know, Dickens, Austin, all these people were very popular at the time.
1: I have to edit all this. It'll be really fun. I know.
0: Actually, all I can think, we should get to the film, but all I can think of now (laughs) is what kind of films would Shakespeare have made if he was a filmmaker?
2: Yeah. I actually have an answer for this because I don't think he would make movies. I actually think he would have done really well in the '90s writing sitcoms.
0: Yes. Okay. He... Yep. You're absolutely right.
1: Okay. Yeah. I have, I have a question. It's a, it's a two parter. Is Shakespeare in Love a good movie? I have not seen
2: it since it was new, so I I don't feel comfortable answering that question. It's it's been on my list to revisit for quite some time. We
1: should do that. Do you recall it being good?
2: I recall mostly being mad that it beat Saving Private Ryan at the time because I don't think <laughs> I watched it until right after the Oscars cuz I I was I would have been like 12 or 13 at the time and like Saving Private Ryan was like one of the first like adult movies with yeah. all the things that come with that that I saw and you know being a, like I said being a Spielberg kid all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. it really you know Harvey Weinstein was a name long cursed in
1: my life for various reasons <laughs> would Shakespeare himself have liked Shakespeare in Love. How would he feel about a film that mythologized him in that that very particular way?
2: I assume he would love it.
1: Yeah, he would be in love I with just Shakespeare just, in Love.
2: Yeah, because okay. I just assume he had, he would have a big ego about it.
1: How do we think George Lucas feels about this movie about the rise Not Shakespeare in Love, The Rise of Skywalker.
2: <laughs> I would love to know how George Lucas feels about Shakespeare in Love. I would. <laughs>
1: What a conversation! I I just I feel like having a conversation. I know that was a joke and it's funny, but I would love to have a conversation with George Lucas. We want to about have a film.
0: conversation with you, not about Star Wars, about Shakespeare and love.
1: Do you like Whitney Paltrow? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what? How do you think George Lucas truly feels about these movies, specifically the Rise of Skywalker?
2: You know, I really, I honestly would really, I w- would also just really love to know his yeah. unfiltered thoughts. I know. In some interviews that he's given post Disney purchase from him, not that I think there's anyone better to buy Lucasfilm or Star Wars than Disney, but that's a whole that's a that's a whole big other conversation potentially. but I do think that he was a little bit sold on the idea that he would sort of be consulting on the sequel trilogy, kind of felt like he got the rug pulled out from under him. And has made some unfortunate comparisons in the media around that. He has referred to Disney as white slavers at one point.
0: Jesus, I did not know that.
2: Yeah. And I don't know, again, I don't know if that's really him talking about the quality of the films or just the process of him being extricated from them. But regardless, there's a whole conversation there. I think, I I know for a fact, none of these three movies are the movies that he would have made if he had been... Force 2 were coerced or encouraged to make 7, 8, and 9. He's talked a little bit about how he was going to like double down on midichlorians and the inner workings of the Force and take things on a very metaphysical level. But I do think that there would still be a sort of pulpy adventure space opera story connecting the whole thing. If anything, some of the more, you know, like the Mortis arc in Clone Wars, the... Yoda arc where he goes to like the center of the yeah. wellspring of yeah. the force in clone wars that's the kind of stuff I feel like we would have seen mm. in Lucas's sequel trilogy still starring some offspring in the, in the Skywalker family but
0: <laughs> It's funny you say that I hate to invoke this person's name but it's like the difference between Ender's Game and Speaker of the Speaker for the Dead where it's like Mm -hmm. you just went to a completely different genre of science fiction that that almost sounds like what you're talking about Mm -hmm. yeah no i
2: I actually think that's a really apt comparison it's a shame that that hateful person wrote really good books that was they they don't movies
0: (laughs) that's true harrison (laughs) ford wasn't i forgot about that
2: (laughs) the it's a shame that that hateful person wrote books that they don't understand their own message that they included in those books which you know has never happened again fortunately yeah that's no. never
0: happened ever <laughs>
2: <laughs> but but no I, I i think that's a really apt comparison because i do think that that would have been similar to his direction is almost like deconstructing what a star war is in a way like because there is a, obviously you know the the crawl to revenge of the sith opens yeah. with war like and really diving into like is this a universe where Perpetual War needs to be a thing for us to tell stories, or is it something deeper than that? That's, that's the closest I have to speculation on Lucas's sequel trilogy.
1: So as you know, one of the big things that we've really been talking about in the last few days is how difficult it is to look at any of these films without considering the story as a whole. You can, but it's almost a completely different consideration. You can look at The Rise of Skywalker as a single film. Or you can look at the, which is exceedingly difficult, granted. Mm-hmm. Or you can look at it as the end of a sequel, or sorry, the you can look at it as the end of a trilogy, or the end of a trilogy of trilogies, the end of nine films. So, Ryan, is The Rise of Skywalker good? No. I would argue it succeeds <laughs> at neither. <laughs>
2: Being a good end cat I, I actually don't know if it's worse at being the third installment of this trilogy or the final installment of this trilogy of trilogies.
0: I'm going to need you to read what you actually wrote in the notes because I just cackled with laughter when I read it earlier.
2: Yeah, it it's it's a first draft-ass movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it really... And, and I say that because... There are good ideas. There are interesting ideas. There are fun new characters and locations. There are many ingredients that go into things that make a good Star War. But there, it just feels like it's, it feels, it's like, a, it almost feels like word salad, especially. And then again, being like, if this was a, a solo sequel, hypothetically, and you had a movie that was like, kind of all over the place, people, characters running around, introducing a bunch of new characters, you'd be like, oh, cool, this is fun. You know, and we're taking it into a, a different place than I expected. But it just doesn't feel fulfilling as an end cap.
1: Tessa, is The Rise of Skywalker a good movie? And you have nothing written in the notes, so i not No, I, can't I don't. It's like a them.
0: complete surprise. You never know what I'm gonna say. No, I it is not a good movie. I are agree. you chaotic
1: neutral or chaotic good?
0: I No, I agree that it has a lot of really good elements, and I think I was able to recognize those elements for what they were watching it this time, especially in context of the rest of the series. However, I think this movie suffers from being very messy. Like you said, Ryan, I think it suffers from being way overstuffed with ideas. It almost feels like... because and we're not going to talk about this. It feels like J.J. J. Abrams, Ryan Johnson put out a film that didn't set up J.J. Abrams for what he wanted to be set up for. And so he felt like he had to do all that work of setting himself up for the film that he wanted to write, but he had to do it all in the same film. That's what it kind of feels like is that this is actually two films that are squashed together because he has to like undo some things and redo some things. And it's just too much work for one film. And Honestly, I remember the first time I watched this and I I didn't have a different feeling this time watching it. It feels like whiplash while watching this film because of the way it's edited and the fact that when we've talked about Star Wars films before, I think every single film we've talked about has had like at max, max, four, maybe five locations per film. Sometimes even less than that when it comes to like, say, the original Star Wars film. This had four locations in the first 20 minutes. Like, it was, it is just all over the place in terms of what it's trying to say, what it's trying to do, where we're going in this universe. And it doesn't give you time to really sit and like breathe and like be with what's going on before it's like, oh, we got to go to the next thing, the next plot point. And then, of course, there's also my favorite thing, as you know, if you've been listening to this series about anything in a movie, is that the a good chunk of the middle third of this is a video game plot. And I like my video games to be video games. I like my fetch quests to be so I can get my XP so I can fight the boss and not, like, die over and over again. I don't like it in my movies. Like, everything should have a point in the movie in terms of, like, what you're doing in the plot it shouldn't be something like i have we have to go find this dagger that might take us to this other thing that might take us to this other thing oh and now that thing is gone so nothing that we did mattered like it it really bothers me when films follow that kind of logic because it doesn't it's a time waster and it's like there's so many things you could actually be spending time in this film but instead you're sort of on this odd quest that doesn't even really make sense so it's overstuffed it's just it's hard to watch, and I think a lot of that is, a lot of that is because the film is written by committee, as we have been saying Good on this for film. You. you got it. Yeah, because there are like what seven writers on this film, um, and so I think that there is a lot of that going on here as well. Is that everyone wants their say about what happens, and everyone wants their cool idea to be in the movie, and this is their last chance, right? So it doesn't it doesn't feel like there's a singular vision here.
1: Just we, it, it feels like Talladega Nights. It feels like uh, Ricky Bobby's dad. If you're not first, you're last. I'm sure I said that when I was drunk or something. There's lots of other things <laughs> besides first and last. There's second and third and fourth. What in the hell made them think this was their last chance? Has it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Twilight and the Hunger Games have completed their their trilogies that became quadrilogies by now, haven't they? I mean...
2: Well, and that that's my hot take about this project as a whole is that the star wars sequel trilogy should have been four movies if they wanted their first movie to be the force awakens because you know and and it's something we don't have to really get into right now because it's not entirely the rise of skywalker's fault that this is the case but trying to handle the legacy characters and introduce an entire new cast and tell a whole new a whole complete story for both is a lot Mm -hmm. you know and the force awakens is not necessarily a good transition like it it would function as a transition point if they wanted it to be and then you know here's the new trilogy with the new characters and occasionally some of the older characters show up but there's a lot of there's just a lot of structural problems Mm -hmm. i think in the force awakens and then you know Tessa, to what you were saying where like ryan johnson comes along and like writes what i think is a very good sequel to the force awakens and then jj abrams is like that's not the sequel i wanted and so for whether out of personal animosity or because he had his own ideas or what whatever the reason is there's a lot of things that feel like course correction in this movie or and i would argue that this movie is not even necessarily a good sequel to the force awakens with all the <laughs> stuff that that sets up
1: as i said we haven't seen this movie before today since opening night and i remember you know being really excited right And I had thoughts about what may or may not happen. And within the first couple of minutes, I was like, well, I don't have to worry about those anymore. And, you know, we we talked when we were watching it this morning. I said, what is the point where I realized this movie was bad? And it's when Star Wars goes to Burning Man (laughs) is, is what that is. That's it was like, oh, no, what are we doing? And it just really went downhill from there. And so seeing it for the second time, not having to be concerned with those expectations, not having to contend with that very visceral feeling of, oh no, oh no. This time I was able to look and really appreciate some things that were there. I mean, there are some nice things in this movie. I don't think they add up to much of anything, but there are some moments You know, that's, that's all just moments to move on to, but really, is it good at the latest point on an episode we have yet? I'm pretty sure Ryan asks about bringing back Palpatine. I want to say we were watching the, the, um, retrospective quasi retrospective quasi just about this film two hour documentary. And there's a part where I just, I had to rewind it and make sure I didn't just have a stroke. We talked about adding Palpatine for about 30 seconds and then we decided it was a good idea and it's what had to happen.
0: It seems like a 30 second idea to be honest with I, you. And
1: then and then mm-hmm. but, but they keep going. The whole story is about the Skywalkers and the Palpatines. Is it? Is it about the Skywalkers and the Palpatine? Whoever said it was about the Pal When where was I?
0: I mean, as somebody who, again, is a casual fan who hasn't read that many of the books, I'm sure there's like material that talks about Palpatine as a character. But if you just look at the films like I have, it's not about the Palpatines and the Skywalkers because we have literally no idea who Palpatine is as a person. Like there is nothing about this besides the fact that he's a Sith and a fascist that we know. Like that's it. That is all we know about him. How many times
1: does the name Palpatine appear in the original trilogy? I
2: think it's only in the Return of the Jedi novelization.
1: Wow. I think so. I, so it's not in the films at all, is it? I thought maybe no. once or twice. I think they just, just say the Emperor.
2: Emperor yeah. Know. Mon Mothma might say it in her speech, but I don't think so.
1: I, I'm i kind of in the same place on you on that. Because I I mean, my action figure was never Emperor Palpatine. He was the Emperor.
2: And even to this point, the only background material we have about Palpatine pre the Phantom Menace is there's there's two books there's one that is really about Chancellor Valorum pre Phantom Menace where like Palpatine shows up as a character because he's the senator from Naboo and then there's the Darth Plagueis novel which is excellent Mm -hmm. and is like the only reason it's not canon is because they weren't sure like it was published right before the switchover basically before the reset button got hit it's an excellent novel and even though it's titled darth Plagueis, it's more about palpatine and how he became who he became and i think actually makes a really compelling and interesting story out of nothing
1: (laughs) so This is where I plug our 2023 Monkey Off My Backlog book challenge, which you can find over on Storygraph, because I think this is going to be my uh, January pick. I have been wanting to read it forever, but I'm glad you brought up Darth Plagueis, because in that same interview in the documentary, they say, well, you know, and there was that, you know, there's been this whole big thing about Dark Plagueis and how he could bring people back to life. And we really thought that bringing the Emperor back to life would be like a good closing the circle on that storyline. I'm like, because you think closing the circle on storylines is important. Okay. And you picked this one to show your work. All right, fine. Ryan, was bringing back Palpatine a good idea? I don't think it's an inherently
2: terrible idea. But it's an idea that I think requires more than a movie might be actually able to handle. And I'm not even talking about the fact that there's a Fortnite message that was a prequel, official prequel to The Rise of Skywalker that I still have not seen because I don't know how to access Fortnite. But the... It's not it's not an inherently bad idea, but it immediately raises some big problems with the Skywalker saga as a whole. One being, what does that mean for Anakin's arc? Because, you know, and and the whole prophecy about bringing balance to the Force, because we've sort of retconned and backed into the idea that, like, you know, all the Jedi being gone, and then Anakin throwing the Emperor down the bottomless pit into the center of the Death Star was bringing balance to the Force somehow. And, like if does that take away some of his redemption moment by bringing Palpatine back? Like, what does that, what does all of that even mean? Like, what do the first two trilogies even mean if Palpatine just pops back up? Now, you know, he also did in Legends a few times, but that was more around his, it gave Palpatine and Luke had a relationship from Return of the Jedi. And so like, it makes sense to sort of continue that battle of luke versus palpatine a little bit i still think it's silly but a little bit and it was a clone of palpatine and it wasn't really him back from the dead anyway and you know all that kind of stuff but here because it's as far as we know it is actually palpatine somehow returned you know and and again the fact that they don't explain it doesn't bother me as much as what it necessarily like i said implies about the broader saga you know, I was at Star Wars Celebration 2019, I was watching the first trailer, not live in the room with all the famous people, because I can only get into an overflow area to watch it, but I watched it with fans, we didn't know the Emperor was in it, we didn't know the title, Ian McDermott's voice came over, and everybody flipped out, and part of that is because Ian McDermott is a great actor, and, oh, yeah. you know, he gives a great performance as the Emperor, even in this, but... You know, it's hard for me to say, like I said, that it's categorically a bad idea. It certainly is poorly executed in this movie. And, you know, I think, Sam, what you said about closing off things and like J.J. Abrams has gone on record a few times as saying that Darth Plagueis scene, the, uh, the opera scene between Chancellor Palpatine and Anakin Skywalker in The Revenge of the Sith is the only part of the prequels that he likes and the only part that he thinks is important, which is obviously, I think, a gross misunderstanding of that entire trilogy, um, for one. And, you know, part of me thinks Abrams really only likes Star Wars and parts of Empire Strikes Back based on the Star Wars movies that he's made and the tone that they have and what he's trying to to get at. But, you know, I, I think... And, and again, it presents a lot of problems because... Now you have, again, this whole idea of the Skywalkers and the Palpatines, which is kind of ridiculous because we have three generations of Skywalkers. We have to invent at least two generations of Palpatines in this movie to justify this being some sort of Game of Thrones-esque family versus family saga which is something that
0: palpatine never cared about anyway because we talked about in return that he doesn't have a line of succession like he does Mm -hmm. fundamentally not interested in anyone potentially being in power except for him like that's not what he cares about
1: i would just say we have four generations because we have shmi as well
2: oh yes sorry yep i did forget about Shmi.
1: apologies it makes your answer even more
0: yes Yes. It's interesting you brought this up, and I keep meaning to bring it up in these episodes, and I don't think I've been able to so far just because there's so many other things to talk about. But I have always really wondered about the whole prophecy that Anakin has and what it means exactly, and I think it's purposely vague enough that you can kind of interpret it any way that you want to. But considering all the stuff that we learn about the Force over the course of these nine-plus movies... It actually doesn't make sense to me that bringing the balance back to the force is him throwing the emperor down a bottomless pit because I don't know what balance bringing balance back to the force means if what your basic understanding of the force is dark and light, right? Like you have to have like like in the last Jedi when Luke is like, you know, it's death and it's life, it's the decay and it's, you know, the rebirth. And, like, if you really believe that and you really have this more naturalistic view of the world that you need both in order to have a flourishing ecosystem, then what does that mean? Like, and I'm not trying to say, like, oh, you should just let fascists win or like there should be this constant struggle between the two of them. But like it just uh, like it almost makes it would almost make more sense if Anakin had abolished both. Right. And said, like, we're not going to fight anymore or like this is a bad system. But it doesn't make sense. Like these movies don't seem to understand what the idea of balance actually means and it's interesting because you brought it up but also because it's something that Ray hears right when she's listening to the their voices of the Jedi right is that Anakin's voice says bring balance like I did and it's like what does that mean like I don't understand
2: yeah the closest answer I have and this is my own personal answer that I don't believe I'm copying from anywhere else that I consciously know of. but if you find it somewhere I apologize and please send me the source because I would love to thank this person but the way that Ma- that i've sort of ended up interpreting it is that the problem again this goes back to the prequels and the original trilogy the problem is that the natural order of things is is balance so like we see on octu like we see in dagobah there's life there's death this cycle is sort of naturally occurring in nature but the problem is in the prequels you have the light side the jedi installed in political power And you have then the dark side then installed and taking over political power. There's not, the force isn't meant to be a thing to be controlled and drive the, the light side and the dark side aren't meant to determine the destiny of the galaxy. It's just sort of, they are naturally occurring, Mm -hmm. you know, parts of part of the fabric of the universe and sort of tapping into them in such a strong way in order to determine the order of things is bad.
1: I just want to say first, I know how you feel. CBR.com published yesterday a story that is essentially my theory about what's going to happen in Ahsoka and how it relates to the anti penultimate episode of Rebels. Like, I was like, until they started talking about the prequel trilogy, I'm like, guys, you went in the wrong direction, but you almost got there. So I know how you feel. We'll get, maybe we'll get there today. Maybe we won't. But after The Last Jedi, Tessa and I had many many conversations about the gray side of the force is what we called it, which is essentially balance, which is, you know, not seeking to divide the two, but living in that nuanced area, which as you know, makes it extremely frustrating to know that this movie could have been Duel of the Fates. Mm -hmm. And Duel of the Fates ends with Ray saying that, that was where Colin Trevorrow and uh, what's his name? Derek Connolly mm-hmm. were going to take this film. Now, I hope things, a couple of things that are mentioned in that that script or that script treatment, whatever we want to call it, I, I hope there were some things that were going to change. But just about mm-hmm. all of the basic plot beats, I mean, Darth Plagueis is in the Duel of the Fates. Like, it's hard not to, you know, we talk a lot about how Ryan Johnson set up J.J. Abrams for something he didn't want to do. Let's not forget that Colin Trevorrow put him... It was a rock in a hard place. And the rock in a hard place, unlike usual rocks in hard places in this analogy, they were both good places to be. Mm-hmm. This guy chose violence. I mean, he did. And it's just so fascinating. The Duel of the Fates is... Oh, my God. That would have been such a good movie. It was... a it, Oh, man. I don't even know what to say about that. But... I, I know you have a lot of thoughts on that whole saga within a saga, Ryan.
2: Yeah, and I I just don't know if people are aware of that, so I thought it would be maybe be helpful to just do a very quick down and dirty kind of run through of what happened.
1: Make everything I just said make sense.
2: <laughs> yeah, so so Carrie Fisher passes away uh right before, right around the time that Rogue One comes out, which is like Christmas time 2016.
1: It was like the 27th or something, 26, 27th when she died. It was a couple weeks after uh, Rogue One's release.
2: And then Last Jedi comes out the following Christmas time, uh, the following holiday season with you know, the, the final performance of Carrie Fisher, really. And uh, in the lead up to the release of The Last Jedi, Colin Trevorrow is fired off of episode nine because you know creative differences i don't know exactly all all the details i agree now the duel of the fates is pretty easy to access out there on the internet if you know how to use google a a much more interesting place and i feel like much more of what many fans would have wanted to see in a episode nine and so kathy kennedy being a big fan of ryan johnson goes to him and says hey we think you're doing great with the last jedi do you want to write and direct episode nine? And he goes, sure, but I need another year. I won't be able to make the, and because originally it was going to be like Memorial day weekend, 2019. And he was like, if you can give me 2020, I can deliver episode nine. We're still in post-production on last Jedi at this time. Like, you know, he's probably squirreling away ideas for what eventually becomes knives out, which obviously is a much less complicated production than a ninth star, star Wars movie. And Kathy Kennedy goes to Bob Iger and she's like, great, I gotta we fire Trevlo, here's the plan. And Iger says, this movie's coming out in 2019. No matter what. And he calls JJ Abrams and says, JJ, do you want to take over episode nine? And that's and because they, they refused to move the date. Now having Star Wars coming out in the middle of a pandemic that we did not know was coming would have been a whole other X factor to this whole thing, obviously. But that's essentially how we get J.J. Abrams directing The Rise of Skywalker that comes out in December of 2019, is Bob Iger overrules Kathy Kennedy and says, you know, it makes the call to J.J. and asks him to come back. I think, I don't think, uh, because Last Jedi wasn't out yet, so I don't think J.J. had even seen episode eight when he, like, started to work, but, like, supposedly Johnson and Trevorrow were, like, at least coordinating and having meetings together and the Lucasfilm story group, which has, I think, a lot less power and influence than people think people online think that it does. But they were really heavily involved in uh the simultaneous development of Rogue One and Last Jedi. A little less involved in solo because it was supposed to be this like fun kooky comedy, and they were just there to make sure like the rails didn't come off of doing anything that would like break canon or the way things work. And then They were essentially, from what I understand, shut out of the Episode nine development almost entirely. And, you know, I just think there's a lot of people who had... There were still a lot of people who had their hands on the wheel of this movie, including many writers, a lot of producers. Uh, Ben Solo being redeemed was supposedly a mandate from Kathy Kennedy. Like, that was one of the only things that she mandated happen in Episode nine, which I think is one of the things that she and Trevor disagreed with. So there's a there's a lot of stuff. Um a lot of places where this went wrong. But I, I do think that the rush timeline is maybe the biggest death knell. Like I do believe J.J. Abrams could have made a better episode nine if he had had if he had also had more time. But that's not the world that we live in.
1: Without really going into Duel of the Fates. It ends Tessa with A a medal ceremony like the end of episode four. And Chewbacca gets his medal, which you'll notice J.J. Abrams kept. The the interesting thing about reading Duel of the Fates is I know J.J. Abrams read it. And I know he didn't credit Trevorrow anywhere in that script. But Finn and Rose have four sensitive children. Which means Finn and Rose had children, Tessa. They got together. And Ray shows up. And says, I will teach them how to do the thing Ryan thinks is important, which achieves balance.
0: I mean, I'm a fan. I've always been a fan. I mean, I think I've made that very clear over the course of this whole series that I think this artificial divide between light and dark causes a lot of issues um, for both sides of, of the split, right? It causes issues for people who do things and there's no sense of rehabilitative justice for them. It causes issues for jedi who like want to have the worst kind of emotional suppression and not be able to like work through anything and it causes them to not in fact have compassion for people that they should have compassion for and you know i think there is a sense in which considering certain emotions negative in is not useful in a lot of ways um and so to me and this this kind of came up in this film too because um there's a scene where ray is talking to palpatine at the end and he's he's doing the whole like uh no you came here because you hate me and like, you, you, you're you, going to kill me and, like, all of this stuff. And she says, you want me to hate, but I'm not even going to hate you. And all I could think of in that moment was, no, like, I feel like it's perfectly appropriate to hate somebody who is that evil. Like, it's hate is a perfectly fine reaction, right, to seeing someone who has killed that many people, who has, you know, been that fascist, who's caused, like, all of these problems. That's fine. It's when you allow hate to dictate your actions and your reactions to things. That's the problem. And so like, I think there is this very naive approach to those types of things that come from the Jedi. And so I've always been a really big fan. And I said this, you haven't heard this episode yet, Ryan, of course, because I'm editing it tonight. But there is a there I did say in The Last Jedi that I thought it would be very interesting if we actually explored Rey and Kylo Ren slash Ben Solo because he says, you know, no more Jedi, no more Sith, you know, in that, in that film. It would have been very interesting if this film was about them trying to build something new, right, together, something that was maybe more in the middle. But, of course, uh, the problem is, is that we don't want that. We want, we want our Jedi to be heroes, and we want, um, you know, to, to reinforce, I guess, this system, even while we're trying to question it, which is why I ultimately think the sequel trilogy fails,
1: Elise would have also liked Duel of the Fates because it has Coruscant.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Now, something else to discover from the the documentary attached to The Rise of Skywalker. To have Leia in this film, and the thesis here is, Episode 7 is Harrison Ford's film. Episode 8 is Mark Hamill's film. Therefore, Episode 9 should be Carrie Fisher's episode. Which, if you take no other facts or ideas into account, makes perfect sense. I'm pretty sure when the person you want to make the film around dies, you might want to figure out an alternative. Instead, what they chose was, here are these four or five, you know, outtakes we have from The Force Awakens. Now, I'm going to give these scenes to you, and I want you to... During I believe it's even during production. Write scenes around these outtakes that would fit within the production script and make them make sense. There's nothing organic about Organa's inclusion in this movie. Did this really have to be a film about Carrie Fisher? Like I I understand, I I mean Carrie Fisher is a formative person in my life. Princess Leia is everything.
2: Here's my tweak on that, Sam. This could have been a movie about Princess Leia yes. and not have had Princess Leia in it. Yes. Because the only and I and it, it's really it is set up in the last Jedi where Kylo hesitates before firing his missiles and it he's not the person who kills Akbar and thro- ejects his mom into space because that connection is still there and you know they they do their best to try to drive that into this movie, cross-cutting between the scenes on, I forget the name of the rebel-based planet in this one.
0: Endor Light.
2: Wherever they stuck Kelly Marie Tran to not do much. But, you know, I, I do think having Leia have passed away off-screen, and, you know, obviously we don't like using women to motivate our male characters, but I think there was enough set up there and enough real-world circumstances where... I feel like it would have been allowable to like actually develop Kylo Ren's character and have him react to his mom passing away, him not being there, and what that all means, and how that changes how he sees himself in the galaxy and his, and the Skywalker legacy. There's there's so much rich material that is left on on the table because J.J. Abrams took the weirdly like the most difficult way out of it.
1: <laughs> now I I just. And, I, and I'm going to throw this to you, Tessa, and you will know why very soon. In addition to this method of adding Carrie Fisher back to the film, there is one other scene that features a deep-faked Carrie Fisher that is partially rendered from Return of the Jedi and partially Billy Lord. Tessa, you hate this scene. With the fire of dual Tatooine Sun.
0: I hate this scene for so many reasons. And it's not because I don't like deep faking. It's whatever. Um, but no, I, like, I
1: know. I just wanted to segue.
0: <laughs> I mean, like, I hated this in Rogue One because I was like, she wasn't actually in that movie. And so it feels it feels wrong to include dead people in movies that they, they did not sign up for. Whereas this movie I was like, okay, fine, like it's Star Wars, I get it, whatever. Um, but like yeah, it's funny that you said, like, we don't generally like women characters to motivate men characters, but they do that anyway in this film. Like, they they have no choice but to do it in this film because we get this scene between her and a young Luke where she says, well, I could have been a Jedi, but instead I'd rather be a mom. <laughs> and, like, that is the most, like, frustrating thing for me. I'm like, you brought back a reanimated Carrie Fisher to say that? Like, what (laughs) what are we do what are we even doing here? Like, and I I don't think this is a great way of honoring this character to like have her like this in the film. I do wonder um, and I do want to talk about Rose specifically because this is a crime, what happens to her. But I do wonder if they had more planned around Rose and Leia as two characters. Like, there if there was, like, an actual arc for them in the original plans for this, I don't know. Um, but, like, we just didn't need it. Like, honestly, if they wanted to include the one scene with her at the beginning where she's talking with Ray about, like, training... That would have been enough like she could have died off camera or like you said, she even could have died between films and it would have been fine. It would not have been like. The problem is, is that is that (laughs) J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy both really want to be perceived as feminist which is why they have her be General Leia, which is, again, fine. And they don't want to be accused of not giving Carrie Fisher a movie when they gave Mark Hamill and and Harrison Ford a movie. But the problem is, is that she's dead, and you can't actually give someone a movie if they're dead. So it, it is it is very difficult for me to see. I can understand what their motivations were, but it's very difficult for me to see this as anything other than them being like, well, we have to have her in it because she has to be in it rather than any meaningful way. That being said, When the character dies on the screen, I straight up teared up when they tell Chewie, and Chewie has that, like, reaction to it. That scene is, like, the most heartbreaking thing. Like, I that was just so perfectly done and like the way that they both like turned to him like immediately and like you know it's like it's his last friend right of that of that I mean it's not Lando they have Lando still but like you know it's that it's that connection and that like losing someone you love i also thought this about R2D2 when you see him like with her when she's dying because uh, you know, and I told this to Sam, I was like, you know, R2-D2 and 3PO's curse is that they outlive all these people, right? Like they, you know, it's the vampire conundrum kind of, of like they, they, and it does make me wonder how old R2 was before the Phantom Menace, if he had just been newly minted or you know, if he'd been around for a while or not, because there is a lot of sadness, I think. He was
1: Darth Plagueis' droid. He was Darth (laughs) Plagueis' droid.
0: (laughs) But, like, there's a lot of sadness there and this idea of, like, outliving people. And that could have been an interesting tribute to her without, you know, bringing in all of these other things.
1: Really quickly, there has been one movie that was made about a person who died, featuring the person who died. And it's Weekend at Bernie's. (laughs) And I know what you're thinking. There was a sequel to that movie. I said what I said. Sorry, Ryan. Go ahead.
2: No, no, that's okay. Um, I was going to say, like, it's funny because that, that Chewie moment, it is great. I, and I don't want to take away from how well it works in the movie. But that only probably exists because so many people pointed out that at the end of The Force Awakens, Leia goes to hug Rey after Han has been killed and not Chewie. Right. You know, and so I just think I think it's indicative of J.J. Abrams thinking of how of how he tells stories. And, you know, I'm not going to say that Leia hugging right makes less sense for the movie The Force Awakens. But, you know, I, I feel like there's a very pick and choose your Star War kind of attitude uh, from Abrams. And I feel like he consistently is misreading any fan who isn't, you know, in his 50s. And I, and I and I use that gendered pronoun very specifically.
0: I, I agree with you. I also couldn't help but think this entire movie, in fact, this entire sequel trilogy is about how Ben Solo and Chewie do not ever have a scene together, like at all. And I'm like, he surely grew up with Chewie. Like Chewie had to be like part of that kid's life. And the fact that JJ doesn't want to talk about it at all, like that. These are just two people who could mean less to each other. Like, I mean, Chewie had to be like his third parent, right? Like, I don't, Mm -hmm. I do not understand how we cannot talk about that relationship.
2: There's a solo tie-in novel called Last Shot by Daniel uh, Jose Oder that um, is set between, uh, like, it's basically set between Uh, Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens, and then flashes back to a young uh, Han and Lando adventure. And Ben is, like, just talking age in the, like, present-day storyline. And, you know, Chewie is, like, his babysitter, basically. Like, his nanny, (laughs) you know? And Lando comes over and he calls him Uncle Whamwo because, you know, he's, he's a baby. And, like, that... There's so much of that energy missing from much of the whole trilogy there's like there's like a warmth that just isn't there when i keep going back to these movies especially force awakens and and this movie but you know it's it's really hard you know and i'm not saying that writing this would have been easy but it it, this feels like a movie that has a lot of unforced errors there's just a lot of you know we saw what was set up and we just took a hard left and right low i said left <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> you know and it and it just there's no it doesn't seem to be any reason for it that i can tell other than we had this idea and we thought it would be cool to include it and like you know again we're we're already and i, I mentioned the story group earlier and there there's a bunch of or not a bunch there's a there's a small amount of ancillary material around the sequel trilogy that does its best to flesh out a bunch of stuff one of which is the Poe Dameron was basically conceived on Yavin after the first Star Wars
1: movie.
0: I'm sure there were a lot of kids conceived in on yeah, Yavin after the first yeah. Star Wars movie. Yeah,
2: but but then like we have n- we still have no idea how he then became a spice runner, which is a detail that adds nothing to his character, but reinforces uh, the se- one of the central themes of the movie. That is absolutely awful. and makes this absolutely the worst live-action Star Wars movie.
1: <laughs> I want to say something really quickly, and it is a good transition to talking about Kelly Marie Tran, which we're not going to do. We're going to talk about Raylo in a minute. We'll get to her. We're not going to leave her out like J.J. Abrams did. Now, something I've learned over the last few years is when a creative person, and be perfectly honest, a man, has made his reputation on the creation of strong women characters watch out we know the first guy I'm not going to talk about him we already we brought up vampires earlier though so you know Um, but J.J. Abrams gave us Felicity and J.J. Abrams gave us Sydney it took me a while I was like what's her name and then I remembered and J.J. Abrams (laughs) gave us Liv as well those are three I mean really great characters portrayed by you know Carrie Russell Who, by the way, is in this movie. Somehow. Along with Greg Grunberg and Dominic Monaghan. And I don't know why. But that, I mean, I do know why. That's part of the problem. But, you know, for somebody who's so convinced that he's the guy who can make the strong women go. Okay, Rose. Good job. You did a good job. But we're not going to talk about Rose right now. We're going to talk about Raylo because that's where we're going. I love Raylo. Now.
0: As much as I also want Ray and and Poe and Finn to be in our thruple, I also love low
1: I will steer us from topic to topic based on <laughs> jokes. And the next joke I had ready to go was the Kylo Ren mixtape. and That's why we're going to talk about Reylo right now and not Rose. <laughs> but we will talk about Rose when we talk about the too many new characters. Quick prompt for you, Tessa, for you, Ryan, and for anybody listening. I'll get us started. What songs would be on the Kylo Ren mixtape. I'll start us off with one. I thought that a song that would definitely go on the Kylo Ren mixtape is Eminem's What I Am. I think young Ben Solo would have really done some nodding of his head to the lyric, I am whatever you say I am. And there's also a really good line in that song, Where Were the Parents? Which was probably part of the problem with Ben, right? A lot of pop punk would be on there too.
0: Oh, a lot of Machine Gun Kelly. 100%. Melissa, like,
1: what Machine Gun Kelly songs would be on the Kylo Ren mixtape? Please tell us.
0: Although, as soon as you said that, all I could think of was the Lego Batman song, The Darkness. Pull <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> up, Boys, A Little Less, 16 Candles, A Little More, Touch Me.
1: Cats in the Cradle, Harry yeah. Ch- Oh, no, no, no. The Ugly <laughs> Kid <laughs> Joe version of Cats in the Cradle. Jarrett, that one's for you. Anything come to mind, Ryan?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh Bruce, Bruce Springsteen's uh Thunder Road because <laughs> you, you know, like I could I just imagine him thinking of himself as like a working class kid trying to bust out of his his sad town even though he lives on the g- capital of the galaxy and is actually royalty.
1: I like it. Possibly maybe Lady Gaga's Bad Romance because that's what this is, Tessa.
0: So I love Reylo. I mean, it's enemies to lovers. I've been talking about this for like two other episodes. Like there's so many romance tropes when it comes to Reylo and the romance fan in me just wants to eat it up. And I mean, there was even a moment during the like what third or fourth lightsaber fight between the two of them in this movie when I was like, just make out already. God, like that's clearly what you want to do. Like stop like trying to kill each other and make out. Um, But Yeah, I mean, sure. I also am a sucker for a dyad. I'm not gonna lie, I love them. I think they're great. The Wachowskis did it better, of course, in in Matrix Resurrections. But yeah, that's the right that's the right one. Um, but like, and I wish that was developed more. Like, that would have been a cool place to start this movie. To be completely honest with you, if you're gonna go in on all in on Raylo, just go all in. Talk about force dyads. Um, but I always like the idea of you know two people who are connected in some kind of like mystical way. And I liked how they doubled down on the Ryan Johnson thing of them being able to talk to each other across time and space. I liked that they were actually able to exchange objects this time, which was really, really cool. Like when she puts her hand behind her with the lightsaber and then he pulls it out, that was a great shot. Perfect cut. Um, I also find it very, very, very funny that during that second or third conversation when he's trying to figure out where she is and she's literally in his bedroom, which is like the most sterile bedroom I have ever seen in my entire life. Um, which is also a romance trope, by the way, the whole like somebody accidentally in somebody else's bedroom, totally out of a romance novel. Um so yeah, like there's there's a lot here and I know a lot of people have really weird feelings about Raylo and all I have to say is why do you hate Joy? It's a great relationship. Um, it would have never worked, but...
1: <laughs> Do you have weird feelings about Reylo, Ryan?
2: <laughs> I, I'll let other people describe my, or characterize my feelings, but uh, I definitely have feelings. Uh, I will say his sterile white bedroom is also a uh, Mama's Boy note, because it looks like the inside of her ship from oh, yeah! the first movie. I hadn't thought um, about
0: that, Yeah
2: where everything else in the First Order is gray and black and with a little bit with a little bit of red in it. But I'll, I'll tell you about my, my Reylo journey. I, I did not come out of The Force Awakens a Reylo. I was not woke enough to, <laughs> to, to, to perceive that because I, I don't read a lot of romance. And so I didn't pick up on the crossing the threshold carry to the ship until it was pointed out to me. But my my wife and i used used to do a podcast called the shame files which has a very similar central conceit to monkey off my backlog but it was just focused on movies that we hadn't seen uh but because we're star wars fans we would do like a special edition uh episode on you know whatever star wars movie was coming out and when we're recording the last jedi we're talking about the scene in the elevator and my wife was all in on Raylo, even though I don't know that she because she is a person who is explicitly not involved in in fandom as a community thing so I don't think she knew the term Reylo uh, but she was very much shipping Ray and Kylo and we're talking about the elevator scene on the podcast and there's a point at which I go make
0: out and like
2: <laughs> and she's like you like this like this is the thing that you like and I was like Yeah, I guess I do, you know, like it really just was a just natural organic thing that I didn't even realize I was invested in until it was pointed out to me. And then I have a few friends who are were very involved in the very thriving Raylo community that existed from Force Awakens through the at least through the release of this movie, who are some of my favorite Star Wars people who have taught me a lot about romance tropes, how this particular romance fits into uh, Campbellian myth and, you know, Jungian psychology and, and, I mean, just total deep dive, you know, you want to, like, you could write a whole thing about them and uh, Tristan and, and Assault, like, there's, I mean, there's a there's a ton of, like, Raylo scholarship out there that is actually really cool and a really fun way to dive into those topics with, again, something that is very pop culture. And so, like, getting getting the kiss, at least, you know, yeah. and getting getting that he's just so
0: happy about it too
2: right and get you know and getting that you know the very wet fight on the other endor (laughs) and she heals him and there's you know all all that stuff and then you know it sort of kicks off his redemption arc but then also getting ben solo post kylo ben solo having maybe one line of dialogue if you if you don't count oof when he falls onto (laughs) that stone pillar (laughs) like and then immediately dying uh not even getting to be a force ghost at the end it's like was that better like was getting this version of it better than not getting it at all and I I honestly don't know at this point that's still a thing that I just don't I don't know and that's why I said in the notes that like this movie kind of hurt me because one of the things that I've realized over the course of the last, you know, 7 years, especially since Force Awakens has come out is you know, as a as as a man who is alive in this time period. There I like I have a deep emotional connection to Kylo Ren and to Ben Solo. Like when we were in Disneyland for this year's Star Wars celebration, uh I got Ben Solo's lightsaber, like not the black Kylo one with the little crossbar thing, but like the pre you know, the, the version that we see in the Last Jedi flashback, because it means a lot to me. The fact that he he the fact that he could, you know, do some of these things similar to Darth Vader. But, you know, Vader at least got to be a ghost, you know, and I've, I referenced this the last time I was on. But the uh, excellent podcast, What the Force, which looks at Star Wars through a very mythological lens. Uh, they have an amazing, incredible. They have a few episodes about Kylo Ren specifically, but there's one about relating him to the mythological figure of the minotaur and how uh ben solo his whole life is a person who feels trapped by all the expectations put on him being a skywalker being you know an organa being a solo you know being the off being a nepotism baby um <laughs> since that's in the discourse right now and a an
0: nepotism but, nephew as well, well
2: I mean, his, his parents <laughs> are famous
0: well, yeah, but his his uncle's famous too. Like oh yeah, for, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Uh,
2: there's a whole yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. He and Luke have a whole thing. But as someone who puts expectations on himself, talking talking about me now, like I hearing that explanation relating to him as someone who is trapped in a maze of his mind's own making, and Ray is the person who is in the best place to lead him out of that, with some help from his parents and reconciling those feelings and things like the the tattoo on my arm is of a labyrinth and it is in part because of that mythological connection to it's like a secret Ben Solo tattoo (laughs) because that symbol symbolism is just very important to who I am as a person and how I think about myself and how I think of what it means to be a man and you know Tessa I was listening to the uh, return of the jedi and force awakens episode today and just hearing that theme again that we also talked about in the wrench of the sith episode about star wars gives us redemption it doesn't it has yet to give us atonement and it's not that i want ben solo to be at some like galactic tribunal you know beyond be put on trial for war crimes or whatever like that's not that's not an emotional satisfying arc it may be intellectually that's what we think should happen but there had to be another way to give people who feel like they've made mistakes, who have messed up, who have hurt the people that they care about the most, a way to find a way back to the light, for lack of a better metaphor.
1: I, did, I mentioned in that Force Awakens episode how important I think it is that Ray is that Luke Skywalker type and thought about what it means that we didn't have that until now. I mean, that's not to say we've never had any action heroes who are women. I'm not, I'm not Jennifer Lawrence, you guys. Also leave Jennifer Lawrence alone. Anyway, you know, it, it just, it bothers me to to think about Ray as this character and, and the way that I see her. If you want to take that balanced narrative and match it up with Anakin being the chosen one. Anakin's arc leaves us with tragedy the possibility for atonement and the possibility that we might finally be i mean yeah i know he killed all the jedi and that's hella bad but the system has been burnt down for better or for worse and what that enables is for luke to become this jedi that he becomes. He Reifies, that is a not intentional pun, the Jedi Order, and then gets Ben going dark side, which I don't think he went dark side. I think he was already there. But So what all this set up, sets up is the perfect condition for somebody like Rey to come in and establish this balance and to understand in that last scene of Duel of the Fates, which I think is such a good idea to say, I'm going to teach these children the Force, but I'm not going to build this system up again. That is what we got. The two-old kid came in, ended up wrecking everything because all the teachers were awful. The Jedis were awful. Sith weren't much better, but the Jedis were awful. You have this interregnum where Luke tries to bring up the Jedi Order and makes the same mistakes. But raise the one who learns from it. She is, she could be, if we did this series correctly, and was made up to be that way prior to. I mean, I think she still is in The Rise of Skywalker. This person who is nobody, but has managed to learn the lessons that all of these Skywalkers could not. And I just don't like that. I just, she doesn't have to be with a dude.
0: But it do you, are you uncomfortable that with way. that because it's heteronormative or uh, are you uncomfortable with that because you think romance is a distraction? Like, I'm curious to know why I you think feel that way. I
1: think it's both. I think that, I mean, yeah, the heteronormativity really bothers me because that's something that, I mean, you can teach little girls or people who might be wondering if they're little girls. I will add that in because I think that's important. You can teach them that women can be powerful, but I'll be goddamned if you can't teach them that without having Peta or Jacob or Edward or Kylo Ren. They can't just be who they are. Like, and and the thing that I think is really particularly lost We got so close. I mean, the 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 flirting and all that. It is what it is. But like, oh, they're gonna up. Oh, nope, they kissed right before he died. Made it. Almost made it.
0: Well. But the thing is, is that when you say that there are a lot of women who love romance, there's a reason why it's the biggest market share in publishing. Right. So, like, I wouldn't say that, like, just because a woman is a strong character, you have a strong woman in a show, doesn't mean that they can't have romance, right? Or that that distracts from their strength.
1: So, I think an additional problem gets brought up here, and this is something I know we also want to talk about. There is a quote unquote great romance in each trilogy. There's Padme and Anakin. There's Leia and Han, and there's Raylo. It shouldn't be Raylo. It should be Finn and Rose.
0: Oh no, I romance. agree with you there but my point in is, terms of romance. We like
1: to do these 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 mirrorings, these these matching, these these things. And so JJ Abrams has the charge. From mostly from Lucas, but a little from from uh, Kasdan as well, who was around once again to do the one great romance. I don't. This is this is not a great. It's something. It's definitely played as a romance, but it's not great. So there is no great romance. Well, in the sequel trilogy, a lot there of people disagree right with there. you,
0: though. Like. I'm just saying, like, a lot of people do think this know, is a great but romance. The setup
1: of Rose Look, and Finn and Last Jedi yes. is better than the setup of Ray Love, if you ask me.
0: If the Wachowskis made this movie, and I would be happy with that, everybody would have ended up with someone or multiple someone's, and there would have been an orgy at the end. And, and, and know I think I'm that. You pro throuple
1: in this one. Yeah. You and know I, I, am. I. You do have Once a throuple again, that you want. It doesn't involve Ray.
0: I'm just saying, like, I get your complaint about Star Wars being too heteronormative. Like, there's not enough queerness in Star Wars. And I. As much as I like the, which we didn't talk about, as much as I like the lesbian couple in Andor, they're still, like, stuck in, like, 20 years ago of the tragic lesbian tr- I thought you were going uh, to the kiss. And then oh, then yeah, <laughs> there's the kiss, uh, and I, I forgot about the kiss in Rise of Skywalker. Uh, yeah, like, there's not enough queerness in Star Wars, and I agree with you, there are a lot of other romances that are set up that are never followed through on Um, in this, and part of it is, part of it is I blame this young cast who just have so much damn chemistry with each other. like. It's ridiculous.
2: Yeah, and I, I want to talk about the Ray side of of Raylo for a hot minute. Like the because there are also pro, there are also things there that I think are are well worth digging into. And uh, you know, I'm glad that you guys brought up the Wachowskis and Matrix Resurrections because that's a better Star Wars Episode Nine than this is, I would argue.
0: Yes,
2: for a lot of for a lot of the reasons that we've been talking through, but. You know, as as much as the heteronormative part of me, being a heterosexual, would love to see Ray and Kylo together and make a bunch of little Kylos, that's not necessarily the only outcome of that arc. Like I think there is a like I think the greater tragic romance is not him being it being dead and like it is poetic that he gives his life force for her and and all that kind of stuff. But I think them being separated, being a dyad and being connected, if he's gone truly dead, and again, not even a ghost. There is part of her that is also gone because they are part of each other. And I think him having to go on a journey of atonement and being either they're together and they're going on this atonement and she's like, I can't be with you until you fix the person you are. Or them having to be separated until he can figure that out, I think is actually a much stronger case for a strong woman character in a romance than killing off her bad boyfriend, quote unquote. and the ending Ray's ending in this movie is extremely tragic to me because she has lost the person that she's connected to with the force in a dyad, which ha- just has to be extremely painful on many levels. She has lost, you know, her, both of her, uh, all three of her parents, like her, uh, her, um, mentor parents in the original three characters. She has lost any connection to her actual par- her actual blood parents she has had to kill her grandfather and she is alone in that sequence like she sees luke and Leia as ghosts off kind of in the distance and she's been burdened with this legacy but is not sharing it with anyone like even like if finn and and rose and poe were in that scene with her or even chewbacca that would it would just mean so it would say so much more about who Ray is as a person going forward, and this just tells me she's alone. But hey, she's got a great car.
1: I I don't want to undercut that at all because I think it's a great point. If you turn the camera around the Falcon with Chewie and R two and some porks, and maybe the others are all they're all they're there. They this have movie needed a
0: hundred percent more porks. So that's my other complaint. <laughs>
1: I all the other force ghosts are on the other side force. of the camera too they yeah. just wanted them to have and in,
2: in my head canon they're all they are all there for sure and the lego animated stuff that that takes place canonically <laughs> after the rise of skywalker does have them all together it's just said that there are so many people who are gonna have seen this movie and will not see that stuff and will not make that leap to say oh yeah they are there they're just not on camera with her
1: i mean that's a really good point and i think that goes for it's especially powerful for her. But I think that pretty much goes for everybody. You know, what? where do we leave these characters? You know, if you think about the original ending of Return of the Jedi, you see not normies on Coruscant we don't give a shit about. You see the fact that these people are alive. You see that Leia and Han are going to have a future together. You see that Luke and Leia are going to be able to explore their relationship. You see that Lando has been accepted as, you know, a, a good person. It's Lando. Like, well, I was just thinking it's crazy ex-girlfriend. I'm a good person. Um, we There's a bunch see of that ways that, that could
2: have gone that I was a right. little bit nervous about.
1: <laughs> we, we see, we even see the Ewoks. I mean, we see like the, the, the possibility of peace. Between people who maybe, by all rights, wouldn't get along, we see the possibility of atonement because Sebastian Shaw, as Anakin Skywalker, is there. So I mean, that's a lot that's covered in that in during Yubnub, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it nothing is said, but it's all there and it's all communicated. We get two lesbians kissing during this scene
0: in a brief scene that can be taken yeah. out, yeah. and then. <laughs>
1: But, so yeah, there's really no closure for anybody. And I I mean, you could use this opportunity. Except for maybe Poe. Right. You could use this opportunity if you wanted, Ryan or Tessa, to say that's especially true of a character we haven't really gotten any insight into for the whole movie, who was so important in the last one, Rose. I gave you another transition. Somebody take it.
0: You want to start this one, Ryan?
1: Sure. Sure. I mean,
2: I have to start, unfortunately, I have to start talking about Rose by talking about the worst character in the entire, at least the movie franchise, maybe more. I have to think about it a little bit more. And that's Dominic Monaghan's character. I will Venmo you, either of you, $10 right now if you can tell me his character's name without looking it up.
0: It's Charlie, Charlie. clearly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> he was the lead singer of Drive Shaft. Uh, his brother's name's Liam. Your your Venmo's on the way. <laughs> His character's name is Beaumont. You are everybody. Yeah, (laughs) And like, not that that's important, but like, you're literally throwing in characters that are taking away screen time from characters we already know. And like, of third parts of trilogies, that's like rule number one, unless there are contractual obligations meant that Rose was not available for this adventure, which we obviously know is not the case because she's in the movie, that's not really acceptable. And there's no there's nothing that any of the characters on that little jungle planet are doing in that arc. If they like, if they're not going to bring Rose with them. Okay. So let's obviously that would be better if they brought Rose along for the adventure. She went, she was on the Falcon at the beginning with Finn and Poe and everybody. That's ideal. But even if you give me the less ideal version of she's going to share the scenes with Leia bringing in, even bringing back Maz Kanata later, you know, bring in, do, having a bunch of greg grunberg doing stuff having charlie show up if all that stuff was rose stuff there would have been a lot more opportunity to give her character at least the time that she's due even if she should have been on going to the desert rave with the rest of the characters that we like
1: i was trying to think what the analog would have been in return of the jedi and i was like if they gave Nien Numb, you know lando's co-pilot they gave him like a storyline it would have been like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> Extended flashback about Admiral Ackbar like, getting caught in traps,
2: and like, meanwhile, like Chewy is like burying all the people that died on Java's barge, and it's just like <laughs> yeah. not there with everybody else, and oh you're like, "Where's Chewy?"
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and I think what makes this particularly heinous is the fact that like for a lot of people, this was perceived to be them backing down to racist trolls online because she did get so much hate. And so much, so much racist stuff online from her performance in The Last Jedi, which honestly was one of the best parts of The Last Jedi. And it really felt like this was Disney caving and being like, oh, this they hated this character. Let's not put this movie. Let's not put this character in the movie, despite not thinking through why people hated this character. Like, it really felt... Like she was given such a bad deal and she didn't deserve that. Like by it, neither her nor the character deserved that. Like Jar Jar, sure, he deserved it. But like not, not Rose as a character. And it it was really kind of awful feeling that way. Cause yeah, she could have been with them. Um, We, we actually also talked about the fact that if you wanted to, you could, if you really wanted her to be separate from them, you could have had her and Billy Lord and Dominic Monaghan, those characters like, Don't do something like, you know, like if you wanted to have them be like their own team, that would have been great. All of those people know how to act. They all know how to, you know, and they seemed like they had a good time when they were filming together. So, you know, that would have been something to explore if you really didn't want her on the Millennium Falcon for some reason. But there's absolutely no reason for her not to be. And I think my favorite response to it, though, was John Chu, who did uh, Crazy Rich Asians, um, he directed it. Um, he tweeted and he said, look, uh, Disney, whatever you want me get to give me a call, like I have an idea for a Rose show. Like I would do a television show about this character and you owe her that. And of course, that's never going to happen. But like, I'd watch it. I, to quote Amber Ruffin, I would watch the butt off of that show. Like, you know, it. this is a character that deserves a lot more than she got. And I don't care if Carrie Fisher died or not. Like you owe her more than mm-hmm. just having her be around. Right. And say certain lines
1: in exchange for rose we also get and again this would be another thing i would definitely lose money if you said name that person i would have said felicity uh, <laughs> zori bliss we also get her
0: i don't understand this character at all
1: she makes she makes no sense
2: she's got a great costume and helmet design like she looks like you know a rocketeer which is cool yes but there's only so much like she's in way too much of this movie for not a lot of story, really. Like, and as much as I enjoy Elisa's best friend uh, and familiar Bob Bufrick, there's not a lot. There's just not. There's not a lot of story there. There's plot, but there's not story. It's characters running around and doing things. And again, I don't th- like. What's interesting about Poe Dameron is that he is. In my in my like head canon and in some of the canon ancillary material, like Poe damon is like he's like a, a jock, like he's the kid where it all went well. Like his parents are war heroes. He's like the he was flying X wings when he was like 15 and was like the quarterback of his high school X wing team or whatever, <laughs> you know. Like and
1: then and then Rocket he can... <laughs> league for X wings. <laughs> <laughs> There, there is. That's a why st- Wedge Antilles actually left. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, "I can't do this. Yeah. Fuck this shit. I'm leaving." He was the instructor
2: for like two weeks, and he was like, "I'm out." <laughs> you know, and then he gets political and is like, "I need to join Leia, my hero." And this resistance fighting this new bad out there that nobody's taking seriously, and that is a more interesting character arc than like, oh yeah, for a while I just hung out with a bunch of criminals and learned how to do like cool spaceship stuff. Like that doesn't I'm the Han Solo analog?
0: Yeah, they were trying you know? to align him not, more with Han Solo. But he's I think. not. Yeah. Finn's, Finn's uh, yeah. the Han
2: Solo, and uh, Poe is the Leia. Like that's what's cool about these three characters is that they are not the the obvious quote unquote analogs.
0: I ought to also say that I really wanted Poe and Finn to kiss at the end of this, too. I was just like, come on. It's all there. The subtext is there. Yeah. It was very close. Uh, But yeah. No. uh, Whatever. I don't even remember. We just said her name like two minutes ago, and I don't remember what her name is. Zori Zori, two
1: Bliss.
0: She's weird, too, because she's like supposed to clearly be like an ex-girlfriend, like, Street rat, criminal, whatever, and she's Beard. like all everything about her is like very like oh maybe we should turn them in maybe we should uh, you know yeah, what kind of debt you heart. left me in and like spice writing and stuff like she's that the mace windu and yet and yet despite that all of that characterization that happens over two scenes for absolutely no reason she then says to Poe there's more of us and like and it's like what are you talking about you're not even more? part of this like who are the us that we're talking about like it doesn't make sense to me. Anything about this character except for that she's supposed to be there to say things to Poe to give Oscar Isaac something to react to, um, and so like I and we don't even get to see her hair and like is Carrie Russell even in a film if you don't get to see well, her hair and
1: see so that was something I wanted to say I I thought it was really weird you hire Carrie Russell but you schedule this shoot while she's already got something else going on so while it's her voice I think it's weird that most of the time we're actually seeing Clint Eastwood's grandson.
0: Shut up. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you think you're so funny. Uh yeah, no. I mean this goes back into what I said at the beginning of the episode. This is video game logic. It it doesn't it doesn't work as a film plot. It doesn't work as characters. Babu Frick could have still been a character. He could have just been part of the resistance. Mm-hmm. I would have bought that. Like
2: Yeah, he could have been their droid guy or whatever.
0: Yeah. Also, I find it a little sad that no one at any point during this movie just pops him in their pocket. Like, I would have loved to see, like, Babu Frick just, like, (laughs) in someone's pocket.
2: (laughs) Even the good things they introduced are wasted.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: That's really the story of this Star Wars. That's really the story of the sequel trilogy
2: and then they continue to introduce other characters and like i feel that one of the i feel like one of the underrated examples of jj J. abrams being like ryan johnson you took my toys and you ruined them and so i have to bring my new toys to replace the toys that you broke is <laughs> is is general hux because i feel like jj J. abrams like saw last jedi and was like oh hux is a comedy character now like i can't use him to tell this story and so look I can't fault people for casting Richard E. Grant, especially in a role like this. He is great in the movie. He is also extremely unnecessary. Because, you know, and I don't mind Hux being the spy. And, like, even though the thing where he's like, I don't care who wins as long as Kylo Ren loses doesn't really make any sense in the context I of what's it. going on. I
0: love it. I I still so like much. it. I still like yeah.
2: it. I'm fine with him being irrational. But it, like... You know, and even that the reveal of it is actually, like, pretty well handled, but... You are? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much that Richard E. Grant's character gets to do that would have been so much more fun seeing Donald Gleason get to do. Like, again, you have these amazing actors. Like, we don't need Richard E. Grant in this Star War. We could have saved him for another Star War.
0: What about Andor?
2: Yeah, he'd be... Oh my god, he'd be so great in Andor.
0: You could still do it. I don't care. Well, <laughs> yeah,
2: for yeah. sure. <laughs> But it's like, you know, Circus
0: has been in like three. So like, (laughs) you know,
2: (laughs) you know, but you have this character Hux and you have this great actor playing him who has a ton of range and who could convincingly play this character through different tones and make it feel like all the same character. And it's like, why? You know, and then he just unceremoniously gets shot, you know, in the third act.
0: I agree with you. And I feel like this was right out of Rebels, except for it was worse handled than the thing in Rebels, except for... I actually really like that his reason is spite because I don't feel like we get enough characters that do things out of spite in movies like sometimes you can do the right thing because you're being spiteful. Like that that's that's I do just that a every thing. week practically. Yeah.
2: Like, right. And and there's yeah. another opportunity for, you know, maybe not redemption and atonement, but at least like having, you know, a like a bitchy companion you don't like who's necessary to get this job done. Like that's a fun dynamic yeah. that works in a Star Wars.
1: I would have loved it if they had taken him with them. And when he gets back to Endor 2, he gets all He has like this, like, like, you know, really, you know, like, ew, look on his face. And and everybody else is like, you know, staring at him because he's like the worst person in the world. That would have been great. Mm-hmm. Oh, so he doesn't like walking on grass. Like, yeah,
0: yeah. yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Kid. I don't know how he makes himself look like a rat uh, because Domhnall Gleeson does not look like that in most of his movies, but I don't know what it is. He just does such a great job.
1: Okay. So Ryan, are you ready for a lightning round? Sure. Okay. Ryan poses this question and in true Sam fashion immediately offers the answer in the notes. So lightning round. Does this trilogy do right by the original trilogy characters? Han Solo.
2: Yes. He gets an arc, you know, getting a bonus round of him coming back in this movie, I think solidifies it. Hey, kid. Yeah. Like he's, (laughs) Harrison Ford does more acting in these two Star Wars movies than he's done in quite some time. And he's very engaged. Like, I think he's more engaged in these movies than he is in Return of the Jedi, honestly, in terms of, like, there's a, like, the chemistry he has with Adam Driver feels real father and son. And I just think it it really pays off. And he also has great chemistry with Rey, seeing him with Chewbacca again. Like, I do think that Han Solo got a proper, two proper
1: send-offs. Okay, if I had a bell, I would ding it for that one. All right, Leia. This is where I go kind of because I do
2: think that if if Carrie Fisher had been alive for the making of this movie, they they probably would have been able to do more with her at the very least. And again, as we were as I was talking about with the you know Ben and his mom connection that's sort of set up in Last Jedi, like they were clearly pushing in that direction where his mom would be the one to sort of spark his redemptive arc. And so I can't fault them. I can fault them for not dealing with her death correctly, but I can't say that I can't fault them for saying, oh, the third movie is going to be her movie and her not being around to do it. So if it's pass fail, it's a pass, but it's like a C.
1: Judges will give you that one as well.
2: Luke. I say yes, because Luke, again, does a really good job of furthering Ray's arc for the most part. And Really, I think they actually do a really good job of setting Luke as part of the legacy of the Jedi from the prequels. And actually, like, he's the thing that I think ties the three trilogies together the most. And I find his, I just, I love his stuff in The Last Jedi, where his sarcastic remark about facing down the entire First Order with a laser sword actually does kind of come true, you know, in a very sly, clever Ryan Johnson kind of way. And to me, like, Luke makes sense in this trilogy. Okay. Chewbacca, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm going to ignore the him getting a medal thing because I don't know whose medal that's supposed to be originally. Like I guess it, you know, but that's we've gone on long enough without me speculating on the source of the medal. At metal. this point,
1: he should have all three of them,
2: right? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, the fact that Chewie gets to participate, Chewie gets more in these movies to do than Rose, especially in, the, in like in this movie. So i'm gonna say yeah because Chewie's around he gets to he gets to tell luke that like he's the thing that triggers luke being like oh han's gone and like you know he gets a great emotional moment with leia's death too like he is i think the emotional he's part of the emotional fabric of this of this trilogy
1: darth goldenrod aka c3po
2: i'm gonna say yes but only because of this movie. I think, see, I actually think that this movie does better by C3PO than maybe any other character in the movie because.
0: It's so good. It's
2: so good. His, I mean, and not just because he gets to do like a dark side thing and his eyes glow red and like, yes, they do another fake out death, quote unquote, with his memory, like potential memory loss, but. He gets to go on the adventure with them. He's actively participating. Anthony Daniels gets some great line. His line reading of serpent, serpent is just incredible. (laughs) Like, that's why you bring Anthony Daniels along.
0: I love when he looks behind him. Like, it's the first time it's ever happened, but when they all look at him and he just, like, looks behind him, it's...
2: You know, and and it's his perfect. his line where he's like I'm taking one last look at my friends. Like I cried the first time I saw this movie just from that that from that moment.
1: Yeah. And finally C3PO's best friend R2D2. I think
2: R2D2 was the most done dirty by the sequel trilogy. Yes. Like I get the I get the depression nap thing <laughs> in Force Awakens. I don't like it, but I get it because he's not in that movie until like I want to say like it's like minute hour 15 or something of like a two hour movie like he's he and he's just there and he, right. He doesn't yeah. even do anything until the very end. He hangs out. He gets to, he gets to see Luke again in uh, last break right, because he's with them on Octo on the island. And then he doesn't really do anything in this movie, you know, and like I love BB8. This is not BB8's fault. You know, BB-8 Innocent. He and R2 seem to be, be buddies. And I even like Dio. Dio is a really cool new droid character who, like, has a cool new shape, and, like, I like the fact that he's, like, kind of, you get the sense that he's been abused, and that's why he's really reluctant around people, and then he sort of no, warms thank up to them. It's great, you know? And, like, teach it. he's, I actually think he's maybe a great tool for teaching kids about, like, body autonomy and, like, consent from that, because it does it in, like, a very cute, fun way, but, like, also very clear like he's saying no thank you and he's being very polite about it but he's pretty firm and i just wish r2 who was like in some ways r2 and 3p are the central characters of these nine movies and r2 just doesn't really he doesn't get to fly again he doesn't get to like buzzsaw anything he doesn't get the periscope and like it's just like i just don't i don't understand what the like why they didn't write something for r2
0: I will say, though, that in this movie, he does finally, after all of these movies, admit that C-3PO is his best friend, which is just, be still my heart. Like, he actually admits it. He's like, no, you are my best friend, which is great. That was the best part of his entire arc.
1: Agreed. I just, I love how their interactions end with that, which is a nice juxtaposition to where they began. Hey, dude, you're naked. Your wires are showing. (laughs) That's where we started, all the way back in the Phantom Menace. Okay. I have two things I
0: want to say. I have two last things that I want to say that I was told to say during this episode as we were watching this. Just to put on my science fiction nerd hat for a second, uh the whole plan that Palpatine has when he tells Rey to strike him down and then he'll like she'll like absorb his essence or whatever and like he'll be like sort of I guess puppet ruling her um, from, like, the Sith throne. I don't know exactly how they plan to do that. It is straight out of Children of Dune, um, where Aaliyah, uh, the daughter of Jessica, um, is basically possessed by um, the spirit of Vladimir Harkonnen because... She has like all the genetic memories of her ancestors. And it, like, like everyone said, eventually one of them overwhelms her. And so she becomes like this uh, physical, it's called an abomination, but she becomes basically someone who is basically possessed by her grandfather. Um, and so I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's some more Dune in Star Wars, which Lucas was obsessed with Dune clearly. And so it's just kind of fun to see those little things in this. Uh, the other thing I'm going to say is them riding horse creatures across the star destroyer destroyer is fucking cool like that was my favorite part of this whole fucking movie
1: <laughs> instead of a boss ass lightsaber fight they had a boss ass cavalry run across the star destroyer that is pretty cool ryan any any we'll we'll we have more to say about this in right. our last segment right. before we get there is there anything else you'd like to throw in
2: the only thing I do want to make sure that we cover, because we have barely talked about this very important character of this trilogy, is that Finn also really got done dirty. Yes. And the, and it's a shame, too, because there's he has a, actually a really great arc in Duel of the Fates about leading a stormtrooper rebellion, and clearly J.J. Abrams read that and implied that, plus implied that he is Force-sensitive and didn't actually complete either of those arcs, and Again, as much as I love the uh, new character who introduces them to the space horses, again, it's just another new character and a new relationship that needs to get established. And and it just takes more time away from, you know, our our core characters here.
0: I always thought it would be cool. And I think I mentioned this in The Force Awakens uh, because it does imply in that movie that he's perhaps Force sensitive as well that I always thought it would be cool if he had gone with Ray and, like, been trained by Mm -hmm. Luke. You know, like, it would have been cool if they had more together in the second movie, I think, and if they had both had, like, different approaches, maybe, to being Force-sensitive.
1: Nobody likes the third wheel. Yeah. Except Tessa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, somewhere that isn't Tatooine, our segment where we talk about TV shows and other ancillaries, except for today, Because we're not going to talk about TV shows and other ancillaries that exist. We might talk about some that haven't happened yet. But today, meanwhile, somewhere that isn't Tatooine, which is where The Rise of Skywalker ends, and whatever else is going to come next will begin. Thank God for that. What are our hopes and dreams for the future of Star Wars? What would you like to see? In a future Star War, Ryan.
2: My big thing is that I think ending the Skywalker saga was fine. Ending the Skywalker bloodline was kind of just dumb. And that's a very... That's a a movie writing thing, not a genre fiction writing thing. So that's why you get like in the 89 Batman movie, the Joker, well, the man who would become the Joker, Jack Nicholson kills Batman's parents. And at the end of the movie... Batman, well, the Joker falls off a a bell tower, thus completing Batman's arc, and basically means he doesn't have to be Batman anymore because his unresolved childhood issues are resolved. And so, but it's a closed loop, and then when you get to Batman Returns, they just ignore it, and he's just still Batman, and whatever, Uh, and as films, they make no sense, but... Here, this is like the Star Wars is an ongoing saga, and again, like I just think closing off that by killing off the last Skywalker, asterisk, is is just a mistake. And I think you know having Ray going from Ray nobody to Ray Palpatine to saying that she's Ray Skywalker at the end of this movie is also just really dumb, because. If anything, like her her taking the Palpatine name is is just more interesting as a potential for future stories of how she's viewed by the other people that she will then encounter. Like if you're gonna give her a backstory like that and then immediately just discard it as like it doesn't actually matter, but it does like it does matter that she's a Palpatine, but she's not gonna take the name Palpatine because that's not good. Like it's very confusing and ultimately doesn't really mean anything to the story, but. You know, I think it's a shame that like, you know, in the in the Legends canon, there were Star Wars comics that took place a thousand years after Return of the Jedi with Cade Skywalker and like Luke showed up as a force ghost to be like, kid, you're a screw up. Like, you got to get your act together. Like the bad guys are running the galaxy and, you know, a Skywalker needs to sort this stuff out and he's very resistant to it. And there's a bit of him in Kylo Ren, I think. But, you know, I think closing off the thing that's most familiar to casual fans of Star Wars is just a big mistake. And I think at some point, they need to figure out how to fix that.
1: I've not been shy about what I want. And I'm starting to begin to think it will happen, which I find amazing. Apparently, there's there's some word out there that there will be multiple Ahsokas in Ahsoka, like Ahsoka from different times, which seems to indicate... That uh, the Rebels episode of World Between Worlds, which canonically establishes time travel in the Star Wars universe, will have an effect on the stories we tell in the future. I've said that already. I've also talked about how I think that I think that we really need to see more of these conversations that put the past in perspective. We need to have conversations between uh, Ahsoka and Anakin. He has some splainin' to do. Obi-Wan has some splainin' to do. They need to talk to each other, by the way. I want to hear a lot more about Qui-Gon. And I, and I think that we can get those things. We can tell those stories that happen between the stories that have already been told, even if they do involve some Skywalkers. Uh, not to say that I don't like things that don't involve them at all, but to go back to the Ahsoka and Ezra and Thrawn and the time travel of it all, I had a realization. I said the sequel trilogies are the Kelvin verse and Tessa was immediately like, show your work. I don't like that. what it is, is Star Trek, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty jealous. Of Star Trek sometimes, and it's fandom. Because they have so... They have like 7,000 episodes of TV. And in this year alone, CBS or Paramount Plus made 300 new episodes of things. (laughs) I mean, come on, man. That pipeline is flowing. And then they have movies, too. I mean, like, come on, man. Anson Mount is like the best Star Wars character in decades, and he's on Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) He cooks in his ship. I do love that so much. I just got to say, I mean, like, (laughs) what Star Wars really needs to do is start building out its rich legacy of numerous characters over numerous periods of time, which is what Star Trek has done. They don't fucking live and die by Captain Kirk. And good thing, too. Which is really what we could say about the Skywalkers as well. But what really got me there was realizing J.J. Abrams did the same thing to Star Trek. Except the difference is it's quasi canon. It's canon, but it's a different universe. And I was like, oh shit.
0: Well it's because Star Trek has the infrastructure for that. Like they're there are, right. there, there are that's so that's what you said. There's yeah. every single series of Star Trek has like an alternate universe, time travel series of episodes, Mm -hmm. episodes, material, whatever you want to say. And so like the Calvinverse was a really brilliant idea. I think, I don't know if it was JJ Abrams or someone else to basically be like, we're going to retell these stories, but we're going to do it in a way that doesn't, that lies alongside of the stories we've told before. And in a way that already exists, that's already accepted by Star Trek fans. Star Wars doesn't have that.
1: You said the thing about they don't have the infrastructure this morning. And I said that's what a world between worlds is. Right. It's time to build. Right. And, you know, I, I'm not I'm not saying we have to retcon the sequel trilogy. I'm not that person. But you've just told me you're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You have told me that Filoni knows the possibility is there. We don't know where Thrawn is. We haven't heard from him lately. I happen to know there's a story out there that lots of people love that takes place, including Grand Admiral Thrawn, right after Return of the Jedi. It is the first then-canonical work that opened up the galaxy beyond George Lucas's creation. And you're telling me that guy fell through a time portal?
0: Yeah.
1: You're going to tell me that happened.
0: I really want the Ahsoka show to be an extension of Rebels. I'm not going to lie. Like, I just want to see all of it. I mean, because all I was thinking when we were watching Rise of Skywalker is, and we've talked about this before, too, like the complete lack of institutional knowledge that any of these characters have because of what happened in the prequels and over the course of the original trilogy so like when ray says like oh it's a sith wayfinder i'm like just call it a fucking holocron that's what it is and sam said oh but she might not know what that is like because no nobody exists to tell them like I don't that that's think what jj it's either does but at the end of the day though it is an interesting thing to talk about whether it's like in Intentional or not. And all I could think about were the connecting threads and that those connecting threads are Ahsoka, who already is a character very critical of the Jedi Order. Right. Uh, Darth Maul calls her a part timer, which is like my favorite description of her. And Ezra Bridger, who was never officially part of the Jedi Order, but was trained by a Jedi. But he still exists he, the way that he interacts with the Force and the way Kanan eventually interacted with the Force is very different than the way that the Jedi interacted with it. And so I want to see these characters. I, I do want to see them again and how they grapple with the, you know, do they rebuild? Do they try to find their own way? Like, you know, what, what are they doing exactly? I want to see Sabine, you know, um, as a full grown Mandalorian still dealing with you know, the issues um from her childhood and the stuff that's talked about in The Mandalorian, like the destruction of Mandalore. And like, you know, I wanna know everything about these characters and where they've gone. I think there's a lot of stories you can still tell about them, um, in the context of the Ahsoka show. I mean, Tamara Morrison is willing to play uh that character again, so bring him back to play Rex. Like, you know, there's no reason why, you know, you can't have these characters you know, interact with each other after the events of the original trilogy. So I, I definitely, and and again, Andor is also a really great step in the right direction. Um, do more genre fiction in Star Wars. Like, give me a Star Wars romance. Give me a Star Wars horror story. Like, I I want to know, I want to see more of this leaning into genre and less of the reliance on the old formulas.
1: The Star Wars horror story really has to star Billy Lord. I mean, yeah. I don't know <laughs> what the point is.
2: Yeah, and and, you know, I I mean, and Sam, I agree with everything that you guys both said in as much as like, I'm all, I want smaller stories. I want different genres. I want different flavors. I want different time periods. Like just let's spread it all out and see what sticks and what, you know, connects with people and then how we can build from there. I'm really, I'm really nervous and really torn about the Ahsoka show being live action because on the one hand. I realize that animation is still, like, I still have people I know who love Star Wars and have rewatched Mandalorian several times over and who have yet to hit play on Clone Wars because it's animated. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. I don't like it, but I, I understand that those people exist. But, like, I don't know if live action is going to allow them to tell the story the way that it needs to be told on the scale that needs to be told. Like, if Dave Filoni gets to bankrupt Disney, I'm all for it. But, You know, I don't know how space whales are going to look in live action, (laughs) you know, and like, I don't know that the the story that they're building to needs to feel big enough to be a movie, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: but also that means and live action also means less time and like not only less time in terms of screen time, but also, you know, how long is Rosario Dawson going to be willing to play this character over the course of how long these production schedules take? Whereas, you know. Ashley Eckstein has been voicing Ahsoka in animation since like, you know, 2008 or nine or whatever it was. So, you know, I, I, I'm nervous about it. You know, I like, I want to trust the process, but I'm nervous about it just because, well, I think it'll, again, it'll help sort of quote unquote, legitimize some of the stuff. And there are a lot of Ahsoka fans out there for sure. uh, Myself included. I just, I just worry that like the story is going to get limited or reined in because of the medium that they're choosing to tell it in
0: i mean i want more animated star wars for sure like i i am all about the animated stuff in general the bad batch is great like any other like animated stuff um but we forgot also they're making a old republic show as well that's Mm -hmm. supposed to focus on i guess the origins of the Sith or like more about the Sith and it's starring a lot of really interesting people so you know even like completely leaving this this what 20-year time period 50-year time period behind and like going somewhere else is also very interesting
2: yeah and I, I, I didn't I wanted to make sure Sam got credit for the idea of hers that I put in the notes but I really would love to watch The Good Place for Force Ghosts like you know do the atonement make you know do the Kristen bell arc in whatever force heaven looks like and get let them work through their shit
1: i love it i think it should be um what i mentioned uh a while back i think it should be the the good place for force ghosts should be modeled off of albert brooks's defending your life that's what i think all right To keep one foot here and one foot into Max Rebo's retcon corner, I have a final thought. It's actually pretty quick for me. When I talk about not retconning, but saying there could be multiple realities for what happens after Endor, after the destruction of the second Death Star, I'm starting to think about that more in terms of a remix of opening up the Star Wars universe in a way that invites alternate versions, remixes. Dave Filoni has already started to do this with the way that he downplays many of the things that happen in Attack of the Clones. And by many things, I mean the many Tusken Raiders that Anakin murders. But in the Force Awakens documentary, we find out that uh, some of the, the fans who build R2D2 Astromech droids for fun were brought onto the set to build R2D2 Astromech droids for the movie. I think it's time to open up the world. If these supposed professional story people can't get it right, I know there's lots of people out there who can. And to put, and I know that, you know, there are people in Europe who learned how to edit video on computers so they could put together a version of Star Wars that looked like the one they grew up with because George Lucas refused to give it to them. That guy ought to be involved. Topher Grace has put together a cut of the prequels I am dying to see. I want it so badly because there's a good story in there. And it's weird that we're bringing up that 70s show Again, in this episode. <laughs> yeah. But if Eric Foreman is the person who can tell that story the best, then by God, let Eric Foreman tell it. <laughs> but thats I think that's what the the way forward is for Star Wars, is to open it up to people who know how to tell these stories because they grew up with the stories and they will treat them with love and care. And I don't see that as a retcon. It's just... A certain point of view right that's what star wars is all about telling stories from a certain point of view why can't we have three versions of a story we didn't last jedi so i think that's a really good place to start so i you know we talk about retcons and we talk about them definitely in a negative sense but i think this is one way to think about them positively and I'm, i think that was the best place to say this i don't have much to say about retcons and the rise of Skywalker save for the one that that Ryan mentioned, which there's a fine line between retcon and certain point of view, isn't there?
2: No, I just want to shout out Star Wars Visions, the uh that was produced by several anime studios that uh I think is getting a second season this year or 2023. It is
1: Jarrett gave us a uh ranking of all the season one episodes. So you'll you'll enjoy that. I think well not just you Only Ryan will enjoy that. (laughs) I think you all will enjoy it. Our final segment, segment six, the lighter side of the force.
0: One of my favorite things in this, this movie is definitely Adam driver. I think it's to Hux, if I remember correctly, he like somebody I think it's Hux is saying something to him and he turns around and he he puts a finger in his face. And all I could think of was Harrison Ford, because that is like the most Harrison Ford. He does it in almost every movie that he's in the, the Harrison Ford finger when he gets upset or or frustrated or whatever. And I don't know if that was a choice by Adam Driver, but it was the best choice by Adam Driver in this film. One hundred percent. Final answer. Uh. I also had a thought as Ray was burying Luke and Leia's lightsabers in the desert of how many, how many lightsabers are buried in the Tatooine desert at this point? Like because it's like
1: the bog in Psycho.
0: <laughs> yeah, like well, I was trying to think. There's like a couple of like really funny examples of that in Terry Pratchett too, where like you think you're the first th- person to do something, and then like it turns out that everyone else has been doing the same thing. And we definitely have seen it in Obi-Wan Kenobi. We've seen it in other other things as well. So I found that to be very funny. I'm like, oh, how original. Like you're pairing a lightsaber in the Tatooine Desert. Uh, I wonder if there's a market for, like, junked lightsabers. Uh, they will Maus only Isley. bring
1: you a half portion.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then finally, my favorite Samism that happened while watching this, although she forgot to say it during the episode itself. I mentioned in... Return of the Jedi that the the Emperor Palpatine has, he wins the award for finding very early on in his life, a fashion look that works for him. And he just like sticks with it. He's like, I'm the Emperor. These are my black robes. They look good on me. It works. And I said something very similar while watching this episode. And Sam's response was, this is Palpatine's reputation era. And I think that that is the perfect way of describing Palpatine's arc on this film.
1: <laughs> Look what you made him do. <laughs> he doesn't trust nobody and nobody trusts him.
0: <laughs> Were there any lighter side of the force moments for you, Ryan?
1: Just the, what I mentioned
2: before about, uh, 3PO, rea- his reaction to the big snake, uh, just, always makes me laugh in the most affectionate way.
1: Alright, Tessa, this is why we can't have nice things. Look what we have done. We have talked about all the Star Wars. There may be wars on other stars in the future, but for now, we did it. That all we have left to do is, Tessa,
0: rank that list!
1: Ryan, would you like to go first?
2: Sure. Uh, I can go first, and I want to preface by saying in recognition for all of the Star Wars that has been watched and talked about, both on this podcast and within the larger Mumble community, these past this this past like two weeks at least, I wanted to give an, an exclusive ranking of all of the movies and canonical TV shows.
0: Ooh, all right.
2: Because my my movie ranking is on Letterbox. I tinker with it now and then. But I wanted to fold in the shows as a just as a way to show my appreciation for this project and being able to be involved in it and everything. Uh, at the very bottom is the Clone Wars movie, which is like the pilot to the Clone Wars series. It's just not very good. It really, and I'm still mad that the quality of it kept me away from the rest of the Clone Wars 3D series for so long because that was my only impression of it. And I was like, oh, this is a little kid's show, you know. So that's number 21. (laughs) Wow. Number 20 on this list is The Rise of Skywalker. For all the things that we have said over the past two plus hours. Number 19 is The Book of Boba Fett. Which I just want to say the second episode where he is with the Tusken Raiders is one of my favorite Star Wars things. The rest of the series is not good. It has its moments as all of these do number 18 is the resistance animated series which i have only seen the first season of but that takes place between force or pre-force awakens and the second scene takes the second season takes place i think concurrently with last jedi because there's no time gap between those two movies it's pretty good it's a it's a it's it's a space racing series that slowly that shows fascism encroaching on this like little seaside base that these guys are hanging out with and like spies and stuff. Poe Dameron's in it. Like it's fun. Number 17 is Solo. And now we're getting to the part of the list where I'm like, I objectively like all of the things (laughs) from here on up and have minimal issues. I just want to let you know that that's, that's, that's where Solo is right now of like, I do like this a lot. I think it has some problems overall, but I like it. 16 is Force Awakens. 15 is Attack of the Clones. 14 is Mandalorian. The Rebels and Clone Wars stopped me from trying to break this out further by season, but I will say I like Mandalorian season one. The ending of season two was not really a fan of. Number 13 is Tales of the Jedi, in part because it's short. Like what is there is really good, but there's not a lot of it yet. Number 12 is Obi-Wan. Number 11 is Rogue One. Uh, number ten is Andor. Number nine is The Phantom Menace. Number eight is Bad Batch. Number seven is Return of the Jedi. Number six is Revenge of the Sith. Now bring in the, the top five. Uh, number five is Rebels. And Kanan might be my, might be like my go-to example outside of Ahsoka as like the best Jedi. Yeah. In the franchise. Uh, Number four is Clone Wars, uh, because there's so many things in Clone Wars that, like, Rebels, it it goes all over the place in really good ways and, like, takes the time to explore and the arc structure works really well. Uh, Number three is The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Number two is The Last Jedi. And number one is Star Wars.
0: I think it's really funny that most of the people we've talked to, it's like Star Wars is either number one or number two. Like mm-hmm. everyone just loves the original so much. I mean, it's so good. And, and, why wouldn't you? And
2: my argument, and having talked over the over these rankings, for the only thing I'll say as to why Star Wars is number one is not actually because it's the first one, even though it does get some credit for that. It's because that is the most amount of time that any of these core trios actually spend most of the movie together.
0: Yeah, that's true.
2: You know, and that Han, Luke, Leia stuff on the Death Star, that whole sequence is is Star Wars for me. Like, if you took it all the rest away, it's all in there.
0: So I do think it's funny. I had to, like, I wrote this all down. Uh, which I need to put it on my letterbox, but I wrote it all down. But then as you were talking, I realized that even though this episode is about Rise of Skywalker, I had left Rise of Skywalker off of the list. So I had to really quickly like add it back in and figure out where it was. So number 11 for me is actually Attack of the Clones. And I want to point out that I don't actively hate any of these movies. So like that's that's something that's also on this list. Attack of the Clones just doesn't really work for me. Movie wise, it's fine. Uh, Number 10 is Rise of Skywalker. Number nine is Revenge of the Sith. Number eight is Phantom Menace. Number seven is Solo. And I put Solo so far up because as I pointed out, I had a lot of fun watching that movie and I don't always have fun watching the other movies. So that's part of it. Uh, Six is The Last Jedi. Five is Return of the Jedi. Four is The Force Awakens. Three is Rogue One. Two is Star Wars. And one is Empire Strikes Back, which the Empire Strikes Back has always been my favorite and I was curious to know like, if if it would stay my favorite this time and I think it does. I think it really holds up for me in terms of uh, being Star Wars and having all the things I love about Star Wars but also being very character driven um, in a way that I don't see as much of in the other films. So I I really love that film. That is still my number one. Now it is Sam's turn to rank that list!
1: Ah, I just want to say this has been my choice for our Christmas limited series, this was all my fault. So we're going to close it out with my rankings. And I'm going to start at the top for a very specific reason. But before I even do that, I want to tell you why I ranked the list the way I did. I had real, I've had real trouble with this. There are movies that are good. There are movies that are okay. And then there's the rest of them. So like, I could, I could divide them into three tiers pretty easily. And my rankings have shifted quite a lot over the last 11 days, because I feel like I've learned a lot. So the rationale here is, which movies follow the prompt the best? Which Star Wars movies are actually Star Wars movies? And what I mean by that is George Lucas set out to make a movie, and in 1976 and into 77, he made that movie. He created this universe, he created it based on the Campbell of it all, the things that influenced him as a child, the quantum leaps in technology that he thought he could and did you know, bring about into existence, that mission of Star Wars. And that's the thing that draws me to this. And I don't always agree with George Lucas. I think George Lucas has sometimes been the worst at following what he started in that particular way. So we all, we all good on that? Which means the best movie of the Star Wars saga is, of course, Star Wars. It is the movie that is the whole thing. Number two is Return of the Jedi because it's more Star Wars. <laughs> it is Star Wars again. It is Star Wars Redux. It's Return of the Star Wars. If you liked the third act space battle of Star Wars, I'm going to give you another one. But I'm also going to give you Murder Bears and Luke and Bader. But I'm going to cross cut it. It's all going to happen at the same time. And I'm going to give you everything your little heart can take. And then after that, you nub. (laughs) That, my friends, is a movie. And number three is Empire Strikes Back. It's a great star, it's a great movie. It's the best movie of them all, objectively, but it's not a George Lucas movie, and he made damn sure that every, to let everybody know. Kirshner put his stamp on that movie. until J.J. Abrams, nobody put Baby in a corner again. Nobody put their stamp on Star Wars other than George Lucas, which causes some problematic things on down the line. Number four: the most Star Wars movie. Of any Disney Star Wars movie is, of course, Rogue One. There's your dividing line, your top four. The original trilogy plus Rogue One. All killer, no filler. And now we're to the some killer, some filler part of the list. But I need to ask you both a question before we get there. Which movie is more Star Wars in the way that I have outlined? The Phantom Menace or The Force Awakens? Not which one is a better movie? Which one is more Star Wars? I'm going to talk myself
2: through and I'm going to I'm going to do the full who wants to be a millionaire and like talk my way through the answer and hope that I get to one at the end of this.
0: <laughs>
2: because there's there's good arguments for both because one is I know. George Lucas, being George Lucas, and like you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of cool aesthetic stuff in The Phantom Menace that is him going like, "Okay, if Star Wars is like World War II to the 70s. Before that would have come diesel trains and like stuff that's almost steampunk. And like there's there's a lot of threads there that are very cool and very George Lucas. But the Force Awakens is trying its hardest to be the first Star Wars movie. And the question that you have to ask yourself is. Is The Force Awakens trying to be the first Star Wars movie? How successful is it at trying to be that movie? And I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna I think I'm actually gonna I'm gonna answer the Phantom Menace on this one if only because if only because the third act intercutting is the most Star Wars thing in either of the two
1: movies. I'm so glad you just mirrored back my entire thought process to me. Thank you. Woo! Thank you, Ryan. Tessa, would you care to weigh in? Well,
0: clearly that's the right answer.
1: So, continuing on at number five, for some fucking reason, I don't understand. The Phantom Menace, the movie we wouldn't even watch we thought it was so bad, is my number five, Star Wars. I don't understand. Number six, The Force Awakens, (laughs) which means number seven, having toppled many, many steps on this countdown is The Last Jedi. Yeah, I know. Please don't take my podcast away from me for (laughs) ranking The Phantom Menace over The Last Jedi. (laughs) Don't kick me out, Tessa. (laughs) And then finally, at the the last four spots, number eight, I'm sure you can guess is Solo. Things get fun here again at number nine, Revenge of the Sith. Number ten, again, not as really not as surprising as the Phantom Menace thing, but at number ten we have Rise of Skywalker. I don't think the Rise of Skywalker is the worst Star Wars movie. It's those damn Tusken Raiders. I just cannot get around it. That's it.
0: It's the weird romance dialogue. I
1: I I think you know what you know what you could do with Attack of the Clones. I've been thinking about this. Slice out. About twenty-two to twenty-five minutes, at the end, with the arena, with sexy Padme, and then slice out Obi-Wan Kenobi, private detective. You slice out those two things, put them in the Clone Wars television series, uh, and just pretend they're not live action. I see, and then pretend that's Episode Two.
0: Gotcha. All right.
2: Wait, I, I was going to asterisk sexier Padme.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes,
2: but <laughs>
1: look, you are correct.
2: If- if they were like look we're gonna remake attack of the clones as season zero of the clone wars i'm not complaining
1: (laughs) i mean there's no reason again no reason you can't have both Mm -hmm. that's all there is to it maybe if you made it season zero you could have like a couple episodes like a little because you know how they do the mini arcs right Mm -hmm. you could have a mini arc of um pre-padawan ahsoka at the academy Mm
2: -hmm. you could have grievous
1: origins I think, I think we've just... Come on, guys. <laughs> come on. We can totally do this. Uh, all right. We did it. That's it. No more Star Wars.
0: Ugh, so much Star Wars. So much.
1: Hey, Ryan. Would you like to hear what Tessa has picked for next year?
2: I would love that. I was actually going to ask you guys when we were done recording, assuming it was going to be this big secret. And I will say, I just started listening to you guys regularly when you... Right before the X-Men project last year and that was a ride
0: it was it (laughs) was wasn't it i will say this for star wars star wars does not have the unevenness and quality that the x-men franchise does but x-men is
1: easier to talk about
0: (laughs) yes that's true
1: (laughs) um but get ready for a ride next year
0: so we we I mean, I say this like we've been doing this for five years. We've only been doing it for three now uh, that we're I mean, finishing. Two more, this.
1: we'll have five. Come yeah, now. exactly.
0: Uh, but we're more than halfway there. We've been announcing. Oh, we've been doing it for three years because uh, we did Fast and Furious X Men in this one. Yeah, so we've been announcing what's next at the end of each project, which seems a little ridiculous to me because it's like a whole year in advance we're going to tell you what this project is. But at the same time, we're always talking about the ideas of what we actually want to talk about, and so it does actually feel. I don't know. I'm too excited to like ever keep it secret for very long. But so let me
1: let me fill in one more thing so to build the suspense even more.
0: Okay.
1: Just remember, Ryan, because you said you mentioned the X Men, right? Mm-hmm. Just remember, there's a Fast and Furious movie coming out next year. Uh, yeah, we I are going to have. I that'd a- be a super time to listen to that first. <laughs> I, I will. I will. I will go back, <laughs> assuming that movie comes out
2: and doesn't get yeah, control alt deleted by Vin Diesel's ego. I will I will go back and listen to that whole series.
1: <laughs> There's going to be a scene at the end of the movie where he fights Black Adam.
0: Uh, so I will say, I don't know if we were as good at podcasting back when we did that. We're definitely not. We did not know what we were doing. But Megan has first dibs on the Fast and Furious episode, though, because of how much she loves that series.
1: Do we know what we're doing now? You said we didn't know what we were doing then. Oh, Do no, we know I mean, now? like,
0: we were definitely not as good as we are now. Okay. Not that we're like. Great or anything, but so anyway, it's very funny, Ryan, that you brought up Batman. Oh boy, <laughs> because we are going to be doing all of the live-action Batman films next year, um, and probably a couple of the animated ones. We can't do all Batman films; that would be way too big of a project. But um, we're going to do I I can't list them all out now, but we are going to include the Adam West Batman film, which I've written about before. We're going to. Include the '90s Batman films, the Chris Nolan films, both Snyderverse films. Wait, um one of which is not technically Batman,
2: yeah, but okay. features
0: Batman kind of heavily. Yeah, probably. I'm thinking because Sam hasn't seen it, Mask of the Phantasm will probably be our our animated entry. We may do another one. I'm not sure, but that's the one that always tops everyone's list. And uh, the Batman, of course. So that is our plan for next year. I don't know how many days that is. We'll figure it out.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Lego Batman, I think, is the only theatrically... And Lego Batman. Those are the only two theatrically released animated films. There's obviously a whole universe of... Multiple universes of direct-to-DVD stuff.
0: That is our plan. Our next franchise is Batman.
2: (laughs) That's very exciting. Batman is probably my first pop culture love not counting like sesame street and like you know stuff that was like on um, which i enjoyed for sure but like i remember having a batman action figure the adam west movie my parents taped off the tv during the summer of 89 and the vhs tape i had had new segments about batmania and people getting the bat symbol shaved into the sides of their heads <laughs> and stuff so but i was too young for those move for those first two movies when they were out but i was the right age to watch adam west Ad nauseum, so it'll be fun.
1: (laughs) All I can think about is the killing joke. I'm not gonna tell that story today.
0: Oh, you'll have plenty of time to tell it next time. But I will tell
1: it again. Sam,
2: I actually think I have the same killing joke story, which is uh my mom bought it for me for Christmas.
0: (laughs) It is the same killing (laughs) joke story.
1: It is the same story. Oh my god.
0: After having been raised on Adam west Batman, that must have been quite a shock
1: i love adam west i i would say for me it was star wars adam west batman and the monkeys
2: yeah for me that was it for me it's, it's it goes batman beatles indiana jones and then star wars
1: i can't wait to talk about something i love from my childhood with you again tessa
0: <laughs> hey you talk about star trek with me like Twice a year. So, and by like, the way, yeah.
1: and by the way, speaking of, okay, so some programming <laughs> notes here, and then we're gonna finish this up. <laughs> and I'm gonna cut it down. <laughs> Probably not too much. But uh some programming notes. We're done for the year we did it. Woo! We're Woo! no more, there will be no more Monday episodes until January, which is, you know, not too far In away. It's like a week and
0: a half. <laughs> <laughs> we
1: are still trying to get through season five of Lost. Hopefully we will have that down before the end of the year. Everybody needs to remind us at the beginning of November that we do not do the Watches series <laughs> after during this time of year. Um, so that's something for y'all to remind us of. But when we come back on the first Monday in January, we are... I mean, it's like it's not like we're doing a separate podcast. It's still monkey off my backlog, but I've been calling it for a while now, Monkey Off My Backlog version 2.0. We're gonna have a great time too next monkey
0: year. Two Monkey2Backlog?
1: Yes, it is Two <laughs> Monkey to Backlog. We are shaking up the format a little bit. We've done some of the things that we have in mind during November, a little bit in Spooktober, but we are refreshing. Mumble for the year 2023 in hopes that our work refreshing the podcast will keep 2023 from being another year like the last three.
0: Also, we're starting, as before mentioned, our Monkey 2023 book challenge, and we will be having special episodes every month dedicated to that book challenge. So we're very excited about incorporating more books back into Monkey. We've kind of lost focus of that for a while, and I'm very excited
1: We'll have a lot more to say about this in our January 2nd episode. We'll tell you about what's in store, what we have planned. And then January 9th, we'll be back at it. Melissa's going to be with us to talk about the Godfather trilogy. It's going to be fun. Ryan, where can people find you online?
2: Yeah, people can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd and Storygraph. Uh, at silver, whatever. That's with a B. You can also find my writing on moviejohn.com. Uh, I quickly want to plug two specific things there. One, uh, if you're listening to this the week that it comes out, I just published my top movies of 2022 list uh, yesterday as of the recording time, uh, which is my final, like, full on piece for the year, uh, which is great. And then I also wanted to shout out uh, Sam's excellent article. Uh, that went up today on two movies from 1997 uh, as good as it gets and Goodwill Hunting only one of which I've actually seen but nonetheless the (laughs) article was very insightful and I thought just very well done and and well worth a read so
1: thank you
0: it's a long one not gonna lie I liked it but it was very long
2: it it is long but it's it's worth it and you know uh as sam alluded she and i had a had a good chat about the length and and why it was justified
1: (laughs) you know what i say why have why choose between quantity and quality when you can have both
0: it's true absolutely that is what you say i have always said that. you have always said that
1: (laughs) not sure i'm talking about myself but i have always said (laughs) that tessa
0: you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at the Bi Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club.
1: Send us your thought. Oh, wait, hold on. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris9 and on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. May the force be with you. Get that monkey off your back. Do you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight and have a good holiday season?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we did it! (coughs) Yay!